Hey, deserving listeners, I want to tell you something. Attachment theory is the most important theory in my life. I use attachment theory with my clients. I use it with my personal life. I use it to interpret other people's behavior. I use it to interpret my own behavior, my own emotions, my reactions to other people. Every regrettable thing I've ever done can be elegantly and thoroughly explained through attachment theory. It explains so many things that I've done when I've thought, geez, why did I do that? You know, why did I say that? Why did I hurt that person's feelings? Well, you know, how, why did they hurt my feelings? Why did I overreact in that moment? Attachment theory explains it all. Uh, it, it explains so many things about the human experience, childhood development, psychopathology, Personality disorders can be explained easily through attachment theory. Anxiety, depression, complex PTSD, and research has looked into the connections between these things, and I'll get into that in, in this deep dive. Eating disorders are explained through attachment theory. Divorce, uh, you know, conflict in marriage, bad parenting, good parenting can be explained through attachment theory. Attachment theory explains why therapy works itself why any relationship works to make us feel better. Attachment theory, it could be said, explains why this podcast helps people. You know, why listen to this podcast as opposed to one of the other thousands of other podcasts. Uh, attachment theory explains why people fight with each other, why groups of people fight over random things on the internet, why nations fight with each other. Why we like rom-coms, <laughs> why we like reality TV shows, why we like this sort of TV shows where they will do a, an act on stage, like sing a song, but we need to hear the backstory. Attachment theory explains all that. Attachment theory explains why we feel bad when our spouse is distant from us, feels distant, you know, explains why we feel bad. Attachment theory explains why we get angry at our spouses, why our spouses get angry at us. It explains why we grieve when we lose someone. And attachment theory even explains why people think about or even attempt suicide and so on. It explains everything, in, in my opinion. And every day, because of this, I think about attachment theory because it helps me with almost everything I do. It helps me understand myself and other people. It helps me navigate relationships with other people. Uh, for example, last night I was playing a show with my band, and we're on stage, and we're we're a Strokes cover band. Uh, I've, I'm I'm in a another band. I'll spare you the details, but one of the bands I'm in is a Strokes cover band, and the Strokes are they they sound sort of simple, but they're actually hard, especially for the guitarists. We have two guitarists, and each of them have solos that they play. And some of the solos are actually kind of hard. And so one of our guitarists was uh, playing the solos, and, and I knew it's always like he's always on the edge of screwing up, but most of the time he pulls it off really well. But last night when we were playing one of the songs, he, he screwed up the solo pretty pretty horribly. I mean, I think he improvised well enough that I don't think anyone noticed, but everyone in the band was like, oh, he's, he's losing it. <laughs> and uh, without attachment theory... I w probably would have reacted to that in a destructive way. Or I might have, you know, like it, if I was just, if I didn't think about attachment theory uh, during, because I did last night after he 
made the mistake on the solo. I, th- I thought about attachment theory and how it could help me understand what was happening. Because if I didn't have that, I probably would have tried to act like I didn't notice that he met, made a mistake on the solo. I prob- if, he, you know, if he came up to me afterwards, I'd be like, oh, I didn't notice, even though I totally did, which he might have interpreted as, oh, he's just saying that because clearly there's no way he could not have noticed. Um, or without attachment theory, I might have tried to subtly tell him that he needs to practice more or something because I would have been overly focused on the performance, if that makes any sense. But with attachment theory last night, I know that I have a rea- part of my reaction is based on my feelings. You know, I, I'm observing this bad solo happening and a lot of meanings are associated with that. I could interpret that as he's not putting in enough effort into this band, which made him, you know, which resulted in him making a mistake with the solo. It, and that could mean that he's not really dedicated to his relationship with me. You know, that's, that's, what, that's where attachment theory really helps us. It's like a lot of things are interpreted on an attachment bond basis. And him making a mistake on a solo, particularly if I'm sensitive to attachment injury, I might have a, a circuitous route, route to interpreting a, him doing a bad solo to him basically rejecting me. And I, I, this wouldn't be conscious, of course, but it would be potentially happening. And this could make me feel hurt. It could make me feel angry, which could make me want to punish him somehow. So uh, instead, with attachment theory in my mind, I put that aside, even though I had minor inklings along those lines. And I resolved to not see things that way, which helped me to relax and also to approach him better. I also knew through attachment theory that because he made a mistake with the solo, he was probably panicking from attachment worries for fear of being rejected by me and the rest of the band because he messed up the solo, right? So he messes up the solo and it makes him afraid of being abandoned by me and the band because that's a, you know, a viable thing that could happen if one of the band members is totally just not performing well. It's conceivable to someone that they'd be like, oh, maybe I'm on the chopping block. Now, our band is so casual that would never happen. <laughs> and the guys are amazing. I mean, I'm by far the least talented member of the band. So if anyone should be kicked out, it should be me. <laughs> um, but anyway, uh, but that's a real fear that people would have. And I, I suspected that he might have at least you know some inklings of that which could make him feel demoralized and then maybe he would feel less happy about being in the band and then he would quit the band, which is not what any of us want. So, and by the way, this happens with bands all the time. Attachment injuries happen within bands and lead to them breaking up like the Beatles and so on. It explains things even on that level. And when I look at the Beatles, because I'm such a huge Beatles fan and I'm watching Let It Be and the breakup of the Beatles, I, all I can think about is attachment theory about John Lennon and Paul McCartney and, and Ringo and George for that matter. And then Yoko comes in and it just the, the attachment movements within the band led to the inevitable breakup. And if I was to keep them together, I would have gone back and tried to actually help them with their attachment with each other and, and to help them understand what's, what's happening and so that they can optimize their attachments and potentially stay together because I really love the Beatles. Anyway, so anyway, in the end, last night, as I'm th- thinking about this in this in the uh, in the midst of doing all the other things last night, in- instead of 
trying to gloss over it or punish him or give him a message like, hey, you know, you should probably practice more or something. In the end, I decided, well, what do I really want out of life? And I thought, well, the most important thing to me about being in the band is to have fun and to bond with these with my bandmates. And so because I know that that's the most important thing and that being perfect is, is definitely not important to me, although being perfect would be great. It'd be awesome if people in the audience were just like, oh my God, that is a perfect band. Um, of course, that would never happen. But but that seems intellectually like a great thing. But understanding through attachment theory tells me that that is meaningless compared to the meaning and well-being that I get from strong attachment bonds cultivated over time with people that I trust, uh, i.e. my bandmates and everyone else in my life. So in the end, uh, after we were packing everything up and getting off the stage, um, he he turns to me and he apologizes. <laughs> he turns right away. He's like, I'm sorry I screwed up that that solo. And I I reached out with my, I think I might have hugged him or you know put my hand on his shoulder and said something like, oh, man, don't worry about it. It was cool. And, and I said something to the effect, which was true, that he tr- in his screw-up, he tried to improvise his way out of it, and it actually probably went over uh, well with the crowd. But anyway, so I said something along those lines. But my primary goal in that interaction was to soothe him and tell him that he's safe with me, that our bond is strong, and that I'm not going to reject him, and that... Um, I appreciate him and his apology or something. You know, it's it's about the the bond. It's about the uh, that feeling of security between two people that really matters so much to us. And without that, bad things happen. Um, for example, the next time he's on stage and he's uh, gearing up to play a difficult solo, if he feels secure in his relationship with me he's less likely to be anxious and therefore more likely to nail the solo, right? And the opposite is true. If he's about to play a solo on stage and he's really worried that he's going to get kicked out of the band or even just emotionally rejected by me, if he screws up, then that raises his anxiety and makes him more likely to screw up the solo. So in the end, the uh, attachment theory and the bond actually gives us a lot of what we want, not just in guitar solos, but in in marriage, in relationships, in parenting, in coworkers, in the meaning of life, in grief, in death, in internet activity, in podcast activity. Like everything comes together, I think, when we look at things through it through attachment theory. Um, it's just this wonderful guide to life I I have found. So, you know, with my wife, for example, it's just so important. Like every, almost every interaction I have with my wife, I filter through the attachment lens when I'm when I'm when I need to think about it. Do you know? Uh, particularly in times of conflict or tension, parenting issues, always through the attachment lens with my students, with my coworkers, with my clients. I'm almost always thinking about attachment theory when I'm working with my clients. With my supervisees, not only when I'm teaching my supervisees how to do therapy, uh, you know, I'm teaching them the, the attachment theory lens, but I'm also wanting to cultivate an attachment with them because when my supervisees feel safe with me, they're much less anxious, they're much more likely to share things with me. I actually write about this in my book, multi-role clinical supervision, 
I have a section on attachment and all the research that demonstrates that when the attachment is secure between supervisee and supervisor, a lot of good things happen, including better client outcomes. And when, atta- when supervisors don't focus on attachment, you could argue that it's unethical because they're actually, there's actually research showing that if you don't pay attention to the attachment, it is more likely to lead to bad outcomes for clients. So by ignoring attachment in the supervisee relationship, you might be harming clients in the end on average. You know? So there's just a lot of things like that. Um, when, I, when I interact with listeners to the podcast, I, you know, I do this podcast for a lot of reasons, but one of the main reasons, and I've always said this, is the community that I, uh, that I feel, the community that it feels to me. <laughs> That's a really bad syntax sentence. But, and what does that mean at the base level? What it means is basically the bonds that I have with all the listeners that I'm in contact with, some of them more so than others. If this was just a cold thing that I did and it was, you know, I was just like going to talk in this microphone and teach a few concepts and move on with my life, then it wouldn't really have the resonance in my life or the meaning or the purpose or the motivation. And when I think about it through an attachment theory lens, then I think, okay, well, what's, what am I doing here on this podcast? Well, one of the things that I'm doing among a a number of things is I am bonding with you, the listener, and that helps me to um, feel like I'm in the zone when I am embodying that mission and it feels worth it to me. Right. And, and I think that, um, and for people who are into that style of podcast, you know, they get something out of it anyway. So attachment theory informs the podcast. Um, it, it really just informs all my interactions with everyone I've interacted with. <laughs> so it, it, it helps me to find happiness. It helps me to give happiness and well-being to other people. It's just such a, a powerful thing. So that's what this series is going to be, be about. This is part one in the attachment theory deep dive. More parts will follow. I'm going to break it up. In the past, I would try to do deep dives in one fell swoop, one big episode, but this time I'm going to do different chapters, essentially. And so I'm not sure how many chapters are going to be, but this is chapter one. In this chapter, I'm going to talk about, or not, not in this chapter, I'm going to talk about the history, John Bowlby, Mary Ainsworth, and others. Because when we understand the history of attachment theory and where it emerged from, I think it helps to explain the theory itself, but also how it fits into our society and our profession. Um, but in other parts, I'm going to talk about attachment theory itself. Obviously, I'm going to have a whole chapter just to attachment theory, which is pretty complex. It's, attachment theory is interesting because it's simple. It can be very simply explained. It's not like psychoanalytic theory where it takes a while to even get the basics. Attachment theory, uh, lay people can understand it very easily with just reading a few sentences, honestly. But it is also extremely complex so or deep, I should say. So it, and that, that's what makes a good theory, right? Is when it's fairly easy to comprehend, particularly because it's so human and so real and so relatable to people that as soon as I talk about attachment theory with clients or students, they're just like, oh my God, yeah, I get it. And also you could study attachment theory for your entire career and never run out of things to look at because there's so many different things to, to, to unearth. So I'm going to talk about attachment theory itself, all the attachment styles, 
and through that you might list you listeners might be able to determine your attachment style and the attachment style of people around you because I think that's a very useful one of the most useful things you could ever learn is your own attachment style the different signs of that attachment style the um, the development of that attachment style and how to recover from that attachment style and the attachment style of other people. I can't tell you how useful that is to understand uh, for your spouse, your clients, your coworkers. It's just uh, mind-blowingly helpful. Uh, I'm going to talk about lots of research. I have been uh, working on this deep dive for months and it always, you know, I thought I thought I would not take this long, but it has taken a long time. And I have read hundreds, maybe over a thousand studies. I've read several books on attachment theory, and so I'm going to review a lot of empirical research. I'm going to talk about social media and attachment, Facebook. I'm going to talk about different measures of attachment theory. How do, how do we measure your attachment style? How do, we, uh, how do we look at pornography? Pornography and attachment have been researched quite a bit. Couples therapy, obviously, a massive important element of any qualified couples therapist is to understand and utilize attachment theory. Also using attachment theory in general with all clients I'm going to talk about. I'm going to, one chapter is just going to be about therapy using attachment theory. I'm going to talk about the brain and biology I'm going to talk about mirror neurons and mentalization and development. Parenting. I'll probably do a whole chapter on parenting. How do you parent your children in a way that is optimal for attachment? Because attachment is related to so many things in life, it is critical that parents know how to properly attune to their children. You know, if you raise your child in a way that is focused on attachment in a, uh, in a good way, in a competent way, you can lower the risk of so many things in your children, so many things, eating disorders, depression, personality disorders, divorce, problems with drugs and alcohol. So that's a whole other thing is attachment is related to drug and alcohol abuse because of course it is. Once we get into the theory, it'll all, all this will make sense. You'll be like, well, of course, attachment theory is related to these things because of the understanding that we get of our development in relation to attachment. I'm going to talk about personality development and psychopathology in general, society and culture and our physical health is also related to attachment theory and many other things. So this episode and the series of episodes on attachment are for patrons only. I apologize if you're not a patron, but honestly, if you've ever thought about becoming a patron of the podcast and you've been waiting for that one thing, I think this is the time. This series might be the most important thing I've ever done on this podcast, truly. I, I can't believe it's taken me this long to do it. I've been doing the podcast for over 10 years, and it's taken me this long to do an episode dedicated to attachment theory. I think the reason why was because I never wanted to do a half-assed job. I wanted to make sure that I did it right, and it's taken me 10 years to gear up to get to this point. And so if you if you've thought about being a patron, I I, I encourage you. Of course it's up to you. So if if you're not a patron, you have to go to patreon.com. That's patreon.com and become a patron of the podcast there. 
and then you'll be given instructions on how to access these episodes on attachment theory and this many other deep dives that we've done. So do so now. All right, welcome to the Patron Zone patrons. Love you so much for becoming a patron of the podcast. Super cool of you. So I want to start the history of attachment theory and more specifically John Bowlby by skipping to the end and telling you all about the legacy of John Bowlby, what he provided to our society and our profession. His work has affected many areas of many societies around the globe in the area of psychology, psychotherapy, education at schools, child care, parenting, medicine, public health, etc. As I hope what will be quite clear once I go over the theory in a later chapter, it will make sense that the implications are widespread. And Bowlby really wanted it to be that way. He, he started early in his, you know, he wasn't just a guy in an ivory tower writing about his theory. He was advocating for real thing, real change in the world in a lot of other areas aside from psychotherapy itself, which is you know where he came from. Every good therapist knows about John Bowlby and his work. I would put him in the top five most important figures in our field. Uh, when I think about the top figures, I think about uh, Charcot, Genet, Freud, Winnicott, Kernberg, Skinner, Horney, Rogers, Beck, Maslow, Ellis, Kohut, Anna Freud, uh, Mailer, Jung, Adler, Melanie Klein, Fairburn, Viktor Frankl, Robert Storolo, Sander Ferenzi, William James, Fritz Perls, you got to go with, with a little bit of Fritz Perls, Murray Bowen, Naj, Michael White, Insu Kimberg, Stephen DeShazer, um, Virginia Satir, Bateson, Mnuchin, Sue Johnson, Gottman, Irvin Yalom. But really the top five that I would say would be Sigmund Freud, Karen Horney, Gregory Bateson, Carl Rogers, and John Bowlby. And if I had to go with my top two, I would say Sigmund Freud and John Bowlby are my top two figures in the field of psychotherapy. I, If I had a... Uh, you know, what do you say, a desert, deserted island uh, list, <laughs> I would bring Freud and Bowlby. I wouldn't necessarily bring their writings because their writings can be a little uh, dense, but their ideas <laughs> I would bring. So if there was a deserted island and someone said, well, you can only bring two theories with you, I would bring Freud and Bowlby. So many studies since... Bowlby has passed, have demonstrated uh, the explanatory and predictive power of John Bowlby's theory, particularly in the last 10 or 20 years. There's been an explosion of research in the last couple decades. So many studies, which is really grateful to, I'm really grateful to see that. Uh, For example, many studies have demonstrated that insecure attachment has been found to be associated with a wide range of clinical issues, 
So, because people will often think, well, okay, attachment theory. Well, that's related to reactive attachment disorder, right? And the answer is absolutely yes. But research has found that attachment theory explains and predicts many of the uh, labels in the DSM, things that you wouldn't think that it would. Schizophrenia, major depression, bipolar, all the personality disorders have all been looked at uh, in terms of their association with attachment theory. And so the, the beauty of attachment theory is not only do, do they find that it's correlated, meaning that the more, uh, you know, if you are, uh, there's a greater proportion of people with social anxiety who have insecure attachment as well. So not only that, but it also gives us a road to helping people with their social anxiety and the other labels in the DSM. Because if it was developed, at least in part, through an attachment injury or attachment issues, then the cure is to address it in, through an attachment lens. By providing secure attachment for people, this will help them with their issues. It, it's, it's that powerful and that important for all of us to be thinking about, not only for clinicians, but also just for lay people as well. I mean, if you're a lay person out there, I can almost guarantee you that by the end of this series, you will walk away with at least a handful of tips to follow to be in a better mood, to have better relationships, to um, be less anxious, less depressed, maybe even less suicidal. It's, it's a profound system. And once mastered, I think you can really make a huge difference in your life. So anyway, that, that's what John Bowlby gave us. Okay, so let's start from the beginning. So I could go back to the very beginning, so to speak, back to Freud or even to Charcot before Freud. We could go to Breuer, who was Freud's mentor, and uh, many other people before Bowlby. But I think it makes sense to start with the founder of attachment theory, Edward John Mostyn Bowlby is his full, full name, which I'll just be calling him John Bowlby. Born 1907 in London to an upper-class family. He was the fourth of six children. So throughout this um, discussion of John Bowlby's childhood, I'm going to talk about things that are related to attachment theory in his own life and uh, things that might have affected him in his own attachment that might have helped him to give him some insight into attachment. All of the theorists that I can think of off the top of my head had a road to their theory that began in their own childhood. And later in life, they you know, looked into it and did research and did cut case studies and wrote uh, books and articles that I think were an attempt to explain their own emotional life, although they often didn't couch it as such. But actually, Bowlby did. And so I'm going to sprinkle that in. So he was the fourth of six children. So right away, we can look at this as a possible factor to him uh, having an insight into attachment and its effects. So when you have six children in a family, you are uh, stretched a little thin as a parent, right? You have six young kids, say you have six kids between the age of one and 10. Well, it's going to be a, 
a, a little harder to give enough love and attention to each child, right? I don't know if this was the case for John Bowlby precisely uh, based on this factor. We'll get into the other things later when we can say things uh, more assuredly. But but already right away we might see some issues with the ability for John Bowlby as a young child to be given enough love and attention for him to develop secure attachment or to develop uh, optimally. His mother, John Bowlby's mother, her name was Mary, and she was 40 years old when John was born. Uh, Not much is known about her other than that she was upper class. The father, although we do know a little bit more about Bowlby's father, his name was Sir Anthony Alfred Bowlby, and he was a surgeon to the king's household. So a very fancy guy. (laughs) Sir Anthony Bowlby was a surgeon to the king's household. I'm not exactly sure what that means. I think it means like you are a surgeon for the king's family and retinue and associates. (laughs) He was 52 when John Bowlby was born. So, so another factor here is that um, your parent, the parents were a lot older and maybe into their careers. I don't know if that's a factor. That's kind of dumb. Because um, as I say that, the, I think research shows that older parents are actually better able to attach to their kids because they've presumably matured more and have more resources and therefore have more time to dedicate to their parenting. But anyway, so... Sir Anthony Bowlby was 52. Anthony's father, so John Bowlby's grandfather, died when Sir Anthony was five years old. The Anthony's father was killed while serving as a war correspondent during the Second Opium War. If you're not familiar, familiar with the Second Opium War, if that sounds like a science fiction plot to you. It is actually something that happened in history. It was the late 1850s, around the time of the Civil War in the United States. It was between the United Kingdom and France, and they were fighting with China. Basically, they forced China to open up to trade, and opium had something to do with that. And so John Bowlby's father's father died when John Bowlby's father was five. So John Bowlby's father, Sir Anthony, had this early loss, and he probably didn't see his dad much anyway, right? Because if his dad's a war correspondent on the other side of the planet, then that's going to be difficult for John Bowlby's father to deal with as a young child. And after the death, uh, Sir Anthony's father, uh, or Sir Anthony's mother might have struggled with grief afterwards. And so this could lead to John Bowlby's father developing what I'll explain later as insecure attachment. So, uh, which would lead to Anthony parenting John in a way that is informed or based on insecure attachment, which can promote insecure attachment or attachment injuries in children, which if you don't understand that, it will become clear in later chapters. But all this is to say that there are some factors that I can point to just in terms of facts that I know that could have led to Bowlby's childhood being difficult for him in terms of attachment. Okay, let's look at the parents' relationship. So between 
Mary and Anthony. These are John's parents. What was their relationship like? Well, it was reportedly conflictual, and it was uh, conflictual because reportedly they were often apart. So similar to the way Anthony's father was overseas, when uh, he decided to get married, he was often apart because he traveled a lot for work. So even though Anthony grew up in a life where he likely missed his father and wished his father was home more often, when he grew up, he also traveled a lot for work. So this is just speculation based on little evidence, is that Anthony might have had avoidant attachment style, meaning that, and this will become more explained later, meaning that Anthony was the sort of attachment style where he in order to manage his worries about being abandoned in the way he was sort of abandoned by his father, he just avoided relationships altogether. And one of the ways you do that is, is by traveling the world, right? It's also possible that Mary, John's mother, had a preoccupied attachment style, preoccupied anxious attachment style. Um, unknown, but it's just some speculation, just interesting to think about. Because apparently Mary, John's mother, pursued her husband. She went to live with him abroad, and she abandoned her children, who were being raised by nannies at the time. Okay, so let's just highlight that for a second. You're John Bowlby, you're young, and your dad is overseas. And this is, you know, before the time of email and Skype and everything. So when your dad is overseas, all you're getting is maybe letters, but maybe even not even that, right? Your your dad's just essentially gone off the face of the planet. And Mary, your mother, so John's mother is like missing her husband so much. And she makes this Sophie's choice to run to her husband and leave the children behind with the nannies. So that can't feel good to a young John Bowlby. So let's get into the nannies here for a second. All six of the Bowlby children, including John Bowlby, were raised by nannies. This was a common practice for rich families in London, for privileged upper-class families in London. John Bowlby was raised primarily by one particular nanny, a nursemaid is what she was called, and her name was Minnie, like Minnie Driver. But there were at least two other nannies that helped raise him as well. And John Bowlby reportedly, because he, he wrote about this later, as he would reflect back on his own attachment injuries, he would talk about these early experiences. So this is from his writing. John Bowlby saw his mother when his mother was home and not chasing his father around the world. When his mother was home, he saw his mother only about one hour a day. And this was common for upper-class family. You would, if, if you want to see a depiction of this, watch The Crown on Netflix, which is about the uh, royal family in, in the UK. You see this depicted in the, the movie. You see the, the, the king and queen are, or the queen and, you know, whoever, it are, you know, they, they sleep in a different part of the palace. They... Um, do their work, and then every once in a while they just sort of bop into the children's room and they visit with the kids and they leave. 
And this was just the way that things are done. It was it was seen as like you've arrived when you can sort of pay to have someone else raise your kids. It was also seen as sort of unseemly at the time to pay attention to your children. British culture at the time held that uh, parenting was had to be a particular way, and in a way that we would look at today and think of it being quite terrible. At least I hope we would think it was quite terrible. You were supposed to make your children, quote-unquote, strong by not spoiling them, by not rewarding their bids for love and attention. So when your children are crying in the other room, even as young as like six months old, you were supposed to like just let them cry it out because you didn't want them to be spoiled. You didn't want them to be a mama's boy or something. You wanted them to be good British children that don't need any love and attention and can stand up on their own. And that hard discipline was good for young, even for very young children. You needed to discipline them harshly. And that being affectionate with children was not good for children at all. And that emotions are for the weak. And uh, but so this was particularly true for upper class people. They were particularly above, they felt like the, parenting was for wet nurses and low people, you know, poor people take care of their kids. We're upper class. We don't take care of our kids. It, it was a, it'd be a similar thing. It's like, well, if you're a rich person, you're supposed to drive a nice car, right? You, you need a Tesla or a Lexus or whatever people, Mercedes or something. Rich people don't drive around in Kias or um, Saturns. Do they still make Saturns? So a very similar thing of the time was that rich people don't parent their kids. They they, uh, have mature interactions occasionally with their children. So when we look at this, we think, wow, that is awful. But we still see traces of that culture today in the United States. There are still... a a lot of people, regardless of class, who will uh, believe that when your kid is crying at the age of a year old in the other room, that you're supposed to just let him cry it out because you need to teach them a lesson that they can't always reach out to you. And although when they're four years old, maybe that's not necessarily a bad tactic, depending but when the child is very young, it's actually quite unreasonable to believe that, that one, they have the ability to soothe themselves because they're, they're not old enough, and two, that they're going to, quote-unquote, learn a lesson. The lesson that John Bowlby learned by being essentially abandoned by his parents was that people can't be depended on and that people are are unavailable and are kind of even dangerous to depend on because they're not going to be around. So it's better to not reach out to other people. It's better to just avoid relationships, right? Or to be preoccupied, which again, we'll get into um, uh, later. So anyway, John Bowlby's mom would bop in for an hour a day, maybe. And it was after tea time. So that was when that was the time when the mom would bop in to see her six kids who were being taken care of by nannies. So just think about that. Uh, Think about growing up in that situation. Now, one could say, well, you know, he had Minnie, right? He had the nanny Minnie who was was a mother figure to him. And and so, you know, maybe he didn't need his parents. He He had Minnie. Well, at the age of three, almost four, some report says four, so just think age three or four, John Bowlby, very young 
you know, toddler child, preschool age child. Minnie, who was his primary attachment, left the family. This is, you know, expected when uh, to happen at times. When you are an employee, you might get fired, you might move on, you might find a better paying job, whatever. And so to depend on nannies to be secure attachments is irresponsible. And I've seen modern, and again, fast forward to today, I see families doing this today. I see families, and again, particularly uh, rich families in Seattle, will hire nannies. And one of the uh, systems in which you can hire nannies is you get girls from abroad, from Europe or Mexico or other places in the world. And it's this nanny international system where they will come to the United States for a year. And the benefit is that when you're living in Poland, for example, you you want to go to the United States, but you can't just you, you can't just go there. It's expensive. You, your the work visa is difficult to get, but this nanny system works out. So you come out, and obviously there are uh, American born nannies as well. So, uh, but my point is is that I've observed this a lot uh, in my professional life, where these nannies will come and be employed by the family. And by definition, they're only going to be there for a year, maybe two. And the young children might be six months old when the nanny enters the family. And the nanny is there, mothering, taking the kid to the park, dressing the kid, feeding the kid, loving the kid, um, getting down on the ground and playing with the kid while the parents are at work. And then fast forward two years, the child is now two and a half years old. And the nanny says, I'm so sorry, I have to go. And the nanny might cry and the family might cry. The parents might be really upset about it. But for the kid, it is a profound loss. Uh, It is as if their mother suddenly said, I'm leaving the family now. And there's really no explanation that can uh, be understood to a two and a half year old or even a five year old to that would alleviate the pain of that attachment injury. And I just, I just think that people need to be very, very careful about how they engineer these nanny relationships. I'm not saying that nannies are bad. I mean, my mom had a daycare in my house when I was a child, uh, throughout my life growing up from about, from about the age of, I don't know, eight until after I moved out of the house at 18, my mom had a pretty robust daycare in our house. And our house is not a big house. So for example, the kids would sleep in my bed for nap time and that kind of thing. So they were all over the place. And she primarily focused on preschool age kids. And these kids over time would develop quite an attachment with my mom. So I'm not saying that it's automatically, and I wouldn't see damage from that per se, but um, and, you know, people can become attached to their babysitter or attached to their teachers at school, and these relationships come and go. But the point is, is that when you are um, doing this sort of thing, it can't be at the expense of developing a attachment between the parents and the kid itself. So there needs to be a, a so some some families, depending on their own issues, will hire a nanny, and then it's like, okay, good, now I can work 70 hours a week at Microsoft. And then they, they just disappear, and they, uh, they're stressed out, they're working all the time, and they come home, and they're tired, and they just don't really have a lot of time for their kids. 
And so the kids end up really attaching primarily to the nanny. Well, uh, that can be a problem, obviously, when the nanny goes, right? So the trick is, is if you're going to have a nanny, then you need to make sure that you also have a strong attachment to your kid because then your kid doesn't necessarily depend on that relationship with nanny. Having said that, even with that strong uh, attachment, when nannies leave, it can be really awful for, for kids, it can, it can, as it did with John Bowlby. So anyway, John Bowlby went through that tremendous attachment injury at the age of three or four that he would later write about as an influence on, on him. Okay, so skip forward to age seven. This is 1914. His father left to serve in World War I. And because, you know, he was the surgeon for the king's household. And his father, John Bowlby's father, would come home once or twice a year and had little contact with him and his siblings. John Bowlby's mother received several letters from Anthony uh, while he was serving uh, in World War I. But apparently she didn't share any of these letters with her children. It's unknown as to why. So again, another... Uh, deprivation and abandonment that John Bowlby went through with regards to his relationship with his dad. Then, get this, John Bowlby is sent to boarding school at the age of seven, sent off to boarding school, which again was common for boys of his social status. Uh, I think he went with one of his brothers to a particular um, boarding school uh, massive abandonment, as if he wasn't already being abandoned, but now he's separated from the nannies, his siblings, uh, perhaps except for one brother. And he later reportedly said, quote, I wouldn't send a dog away to boarding school at the age of seven. So in other words, he's, he's saying, I was sent away to a boarding school when I was seven. I wouldn't do this to a dog. If you, have, if you have compassion for humans and dogs, you would understand that you don't just send a child away to a boarding school at the age of seven. That's awful. So even though he actually spoke out against this practice, he actually had absorbed some of society's views on this and was what I would say too soft on this issue. For example... In 1951, he wrote, uh, I'll summarize the quote here. He basically is saying, look, if a child is maladjusted, if a child is having troubles, it might be useful to send the child away for part of the year um, so that the child can get away from the difficulties. And also when the parents are relieved of the pressures of parenting, they might be more enthusiastic to parent the child when the parent returns. And, you know, this is, this is a statement from a man who uh, experienced the horrors of being sent to a boarding school at the age of seven and really was against it. So even though um, he was progressive in his time and was, you know, had a very different idea of this sort of thing, he still wasn't fully out of that culture. He, would, he had internalized a lot of those messages. And so I, I think he went a little soft on this issue. Um, I, it oft, I often think about myself in, in this way because, you know, God knows this podcast might be listened to in 50 years, 100 years or something by some weird historian of some sort. And they might find that 
there are things that I said that were uh, along these lines where I was, shall we say, progressive in certain areas, but not as progressive as people will be in the future <laughs> and uh, given data that we'll learn in the future. So anyway, uh, also around this time at the age of seven, the tragic, he, he, uh, his beloved godfather died during this time. So it's another loss for him, another attachment injury. 1923, skipping forward to age 15 or 16. I'm not sure, but I think he stayed at a boarding school until he was around this age. So from 7 to 15-ish, I think he was at a boarding school. I'm not entirely sure on that. I tried to figure that out. All I know is that he was at a boarding school for some time, and he might have been there for basically his entire childhood. And at this time, age 15 or 16, he entered the Royal Navy College. I, I think back then you left regular school um, early in life. And so he entered the Royal Navy College at age 15 or 16. He was there for one or two years. During this time in 1923, another theoretician was actually developing what could be called attachment theory. Unbeknownst to Bowlby and unbeknownst to everyone because everyone ignored him, he was an obscure Hungarian psychoanalyst, Emery Herman. And he wrote that humans appeared to have the same instinct for attachment as other primates, which is essentially what John Bowlby would assert later in his career. And this was ignored because it was too weird for people to relate to, which I'll get into later. There's a lot of reasons, so to speak, as to why this theory and John Bowlby's theory was rejected, even though it makes total sense to us today. And that's because it's such a strong theory and we also have adopted it because of uh, John Bowlby's dogged work to make us understand it. But anyway, so uh, skipping forward to the later tw 1920s when John Bowlby is in his um, late teens, he entered Trinity College and he was following in his father's footsteps. He studied medicine to become a physician like his father. In a later interview, he said his father encouraged him to become a physician, and he agreed because he wanted to follow in his father's footsteps. And this is a, another evidence, this is more evidence of um, attachment issues in that he, John Bowlby missed his father and might have had a, a complex around that, wanting to make his father proud of him, wanting to get love and attention that he didn't get when he was young. And one of the ways that some kids will try to pursue that is through invisible loyalties um, by basically just mimicking everything that your parents do as a way to get them to love you. Um, it sometimes works, but it doesn't usually. After three years, he switched to developmental psychology because he was never really interested in medicine in the first place. He did well in school. He won the title for Outstanding Intellectual Performance. This looks to me, again, just speculation because I don't have the benefit of data, but it's possible that John Bowlby early in life developed what we call a delegate role or a star role in the family, meaning that when you have issues of attachment insecurity and um, non-attuned parenting, the children will be stressed out to the point where they have to develop these really rigid rigid roles as a way of gaining love and attention in these niche areas. 
And some children will develop what we call a delegate role or a star role, which is the role of the child to be very good at things, good at sports, good at school, this, this sort of thing, um, very presentable. And it's possible that John Bowlby early in life decided that, well, if I'm not going to get the love and attention from just being myself and being a, just a child – then I have to figure out a way to get that. And maybe the way I can do that is by being extremely good in school. And he was, um, uh, he, he seemed to excel. And in order to excel, you have to put a lot of effort into it. Uh, again, just speculation. All right, so skipping forward to 1928, he is 21 years old, and he graduated from Trinity College in, with a degree in developmental psychology. And he didn't know what to do next, so he volunteered at a school for maladjusted children, and there he worked He worked with the children who were, quote-unquote, maladjusted. And one of the first things that he did was to conduct an empirical study, his, his first empirical study, in which he tracked 44 children who had behavior problems. And he discovered that many of these children had been deprived of their mothers at some point in their childhood. Uh, I, so I, this is just, to me, I wish I could have been there. It's sort of like when Einstein figures out E equals MC squared. It's that important to our society that a young John Bowlby, 21 years old, after experiencing all these very socially, culturally normal uh, attachment injuries – and no one is talking about attachment theory. No one – and I'll get in more into like the, the ideas of a development at the time were just so wackadoo. Um, in professional psychology, professional psychotherapy, they just had the weirdest views and which have continued to go on today. But So I just can't imagine a young Bowlby without any guidance around attachment theory, without anywhere to turn. And he just finds himself working with these kids and he's like, okay – why do these kids have behavior problems as opposed to other kids that don't have behavior problems? What's different about these kids? And, you know, he just starts to piece together these patterns and he's like, well, wait a second. A lot of these kids with behavior problems have been deprived of their mothers at some point during their childhood. Maybe their mothers were sick or maybe their mothers died or maybe their mothers moved away or something. And so he's like, well, isn't that interesting? And to us today, that's just obvious, right? It's obvious. Like, well, obviously, if the mother is gone and not available to the young child, then of course the child's going to grow up with behavior problems. Well, back then, that was not a thing. They did, not only did they not think that way, but they actually thought the opposite was true that when mothers were around all the time, it could lead to behavior problems. So just, Think about Bowlby as he's looking into this. He's like, wait a second. You know, everything I know and everything that's in our culture, everything that's being taught to me in university is not really jiving here with the reality. He worked particularly with two children who had uh, troubles at home and at school. Uh, and he, write, he wrote about this at the time. It was a study that he published. And he would later refer back to this very important, influential time in his life. One boy was a withdrawn teenager who had been expelled from school for stealing stuff. Upon further investigation, John Bowlby discovered that this teen had no stable mother figure. This probably remained with him 
this this probably this probably reminded him of his own life, right? So John Bowlby's like, "Wow, this kid's like me," and he was, um, you know, he didn't grow up with a stable mother figure, and then as a teenager, he was expelled from school for stealing stuff. I wonder if uh, this teenager is just like another version of me. Which really makes me wonder what kind of issues Bowlby went through because he didn't write about that enough. He didn't self-disclose about his own uh, – he must have suffered quite a bit, I'm guessing, Bowlby. Um, so later he would call this avoidant attachment, um, which I'll get into later. But anyway, so the other boy that he was working with was seven years old, and he was really anxious. And he was really clingy to John Bowlby. So he was – uh, this the seven year old boy didn't have a stable mother, and was very anxious and very clingy to John. And John is like, "Wow, this kid's really clingy. That's interesting." And that this is his uh, the beginning of his understanding of of anxious attachment or preoccupied attachment. And in working with these two particular boys, who you know, one was avoidant of attachments and the other one was preoccupied with attachments related to their attachment injuries as children. This inspired him to become a child psychiatrist because he, you know, with, with a degree in developmental psychology, you could really go a lot of different ways, but he decided to become a child psychiatrist and boy, was that a important decision for us all going to the next year, age 22. He worked at a couple of hospitals. He studied more. He also worked with the British psychoanalytic Institute to become a psychoanalyst, which was the primary way, the uh, primary profession for people who wanted to do this kind of work. And it was the dominant theory in psychotherapy at the time, and Freud was mega popular during this time, 1929. Melanie Klein had recently moved to London from Berlin. She was known for her work with children, and she was known for her uh, use of play in therapy. Our notion of using play and therapy was originated mostly from Melanie Klein during this time. She was probably the first psychotherapist to work with ch child clients and the first therapist to use play and therapy. She basically started the object relations movement, sh which shifted psychoanalysis away from drives and toward relationships, which was a good thing, obviously. But she was very Freudian, and if you ever read Klein stuff – it's filled with all sorts of jargon of the time, and it's and there's also some odd ideas, you know, uh, the the good breast and the bad breast kind of thing. Uh, Klein actually uh, supervised John Bowlby as Bowlby was a young 22 year old working with children, and he learned he learned a lot from her, and he would later say that he appreciated much of her approach, but he eventually discovered that he actually didn't like her theory very much. He thought that she focused too much on children's fantasies. So it's hard to fully encapsulate Melanie Klein's um, notions, but her and, and she had many followers as well. They believed that children's emotional problems were due to fantasies generated from internal conflict because of aggressive, between aggressive dri drives and pleasure drives. So it was very Freudian for its time, although some Freudians thought that Melanie Klein was too far removed from, you know, the core Freudian theory, but it's very Freudian to us today in that 
she believed and all of her followers believe that we have aggressive drives inside of us and we have pleasure drives inside of us. And, and we certainly, you know, that certainly stands to reason, right? That we have a drive for pleasure and a drive away from pain. And we have a drive uh, to be aggressive, to assert ourselves and have power in the world. It's, it's not uh, that uh, weird of a thought to think, but what the the problem with object relations theory, uh, the Melanie Klein version of, and because there's the Fairburn school of object relations as well, but Klein and their followers, they were still basically stuck in this old notion of drives while completely ignoring the context that those drives exist in, which is relationships. They basically focused on these, on these internal processes. They were trying to reduce human experience to these fundamental principles, things that are emerged from an individual. And they, they wanted to get away from relationships because it, it felt too complicated to them. I think it was also just part of the, you know, the culture of the time. Right. And they didn't really care about the relationship between the child and the mother. I mean, certainly Klein wrote about the mother a lot, but it was more in relation to the drives from the child. It, it was Sort of, it's hard to explain because it, it's so foreign to the way that we think today. But just imagine people who had an idea of like, well, it doesn't really matter what the mother does, was kind of the point. It was more a matter of how the child copes or deals with over time their relationship with the mother. But it's more of like a one-way street. It was more like, how does this individual cope with their world and how do they develop within that um, thing? Instead, what Bowlby was beginning to think was, well, wait, okay, that's great. But really what we need to think about is the relationship, the built relationship between the parent and the child. That is the context in which the child develops, in which the personality develops. And so we really have to think about the quality of that relationship. How does the uh, mother react to the child? The decisions of the parent are critical when the child is developing their personality and their brain. And of course, that makes total sense to us today. But at the time, that was just considered to be stupid thinking. It was like, well, no, that doesn't that it pushes that puts too much emphasis on things that are outside this child's brain. It's similar to today. In, in that we often, I often find that I am screaming at everybody, sometimes it's Umberto, that society uh, affects the way that we develop. It affects the way that we think. You know, for some of you, you might have listened to episodes in which I'm arguing with Umberto because he'll think that Republicans have something that are innately different about them, that they were born different. And the data just doesn't support that notion. The uh, and it doesn't really stand to reason either. We develop our beliefs and our notions based on a combination of a lot of things, uh, most notably the social context that we're in. Your political beliefs are largely a result of the society in which you emerged from, and not just the broader society, but the people you identified with and maybe the people who are really close to you. So, for example, when someone is a Republican and they go to a liberal arts college, they are much more likely to become a Democrat. 
Um, and why is that? Is it because they were born a Democrat or is it because of the society they live in? And so today, most people have a really hard time accepting that. And I'm sure in the future, I hope that uh, enough convincing data or the ideas will shift in our society where people will just be like, oh, yeah, of course. Of course, many of my beliefs have been shaped by the society in which I grew up in. It's not a decision that I have these um, these beliefs. Um, I mean, I'm not without willpower in this situation, but you know, the context in which I grew up in are, is a big factor in the beliefs that I have and the beliefs that you have. And uh, so, so think about that rub, and if if you can relate to that frustration, well, that's even more so the frustration that John Bowlby was going through. He was like how come no one is considering the possibility that personality and adjustment and psychopathology is related to the way the parents uh, treat their kids is related to the, the depth of the relationship that the parents have with their kids, or at the very least that when you separate children from their parents for periods of time, then this will have a problem with this will create problems that will lead later to psychopathology and maladjustment in in these children. To us, it's a no duh, but to them back then, it was completely strange. It was like, no, you know, the same way that people today will deny society's effect on people. So along these lines, Bowlby was working with a three-year-old child and he was like, well, and really, the only way I can really understand this three-year-old child is if I talk to the mother and I can figure out the relationship between the mother and this child. And he, John Bowlby, went to a supervisor, Melanie Klein, and said, I want to talk to the mother because I, I want to look at the relationship between them. And because Melanie Klein and John Bowlby were starting to have a conflict around the their ideas of where psychopathology emerges from, Melanie Klein forbade John Bowlby from talking to the mother. Uh, Bowlby actually wrote about this in 1987. So John is is like, well, okay, I really appreciate Melanie Klein. She's at the cutting edge. Uh, she's actually taking Freudian theory and making it more you know more relational. It's in the direction that I feel like we need to go but I don't feel like we're not going far enough. And so if I want to do good work, I need to talk to the mother and, you know, keep in mind that John is in his early twenties at this time. So he goes to Melanie Klein, this world renowned, you know, person and says, you know, I'd like to talk to the mother and Melanie Klein's like, Nope, you cannot talk to the mother. I'm not going to let you. So to some of you out there, you might be thinking, wow, times are different now. Well, I'm here to tell you that they're not. I have, supervisees at my university who are in the community working, you know, they're interns at various agencies in the Seattle area. And there are supervisors that do this today. Even marriage and family therapist supervisors will do this where the intern at the, um, you know, based on this very important notion that attachment theory and relationships and the systemic nature of problems is relevant. uh, They will go to their supervisor and say, so it's great that I'm working with this six-year-old and playing, doing play therapy with this six-year-old uh, an, an hour a week. It's, you know, it's great. I think this is good work. But I also need to meet with the parents. I need to get them into the, the room, observe how they work together, maybe talk to the parents about their concerns about parenting, maybe uh, 
there's stress in the family that I can help with. I'm a family therapist. I'm trained to work with the entire family. I need to evaluate the system. I need to evaluate the attachment behaviors, the attachment parenting that these people are doing. And the supervisor will say, no, you cannot see the parent because that is not good therapy or that's not what our department does. Our de- you know, another department across the hall, they deal with adults. And so on one side of the hall, the adults see therapists and the other side of the hall, the children see therapists and never the twain shall meet. And that is the most dumbest thing. So we look back at 1923, 1929, sorry, when John Bowlby is 22 years old. And we're like, man, Melanie Klein really didn't know what she was doing. She was so adamant about her, her theory that she couldn't expand her mind into the brilliance of a emerging genius of John Bowlby that, you know, we really should be looking at this, the attachment between the parent and child. And we think, oh boy, what an antiquated time. What, what a time of stupidity. And it's still happening today. And it drives me crazy. Now, some of you might be thinking, particularly if you're in the field, you might be like, well, you know, billing and that sort of thing. No, that's, that's not the issue. I know for a fact that you can bill and get paid the same amount, if not more, to, to do this kind of family work. Uh, more because you might need more hours in the week to, to meet with multiple people in the family, right? So agencies could actually make more money if they adopted this. So money is actually, so that there's a philosophical a problem that some people have that they just that they just devalue this sort of thing. They're just like, no. Uh, in fact, some supervisors will have the belief that um, in order to be a good therapist, you have to separate the person from their family, which of course is impossible. It's like saying I have to separate someone from society. You know, a black person comes into your office and is saying like, I'm really depressed because of the way society is treating me, and I can't get a job because of racism. So this notion of just like, well, I need to separate this black person from society so that I can make them better and then I can send them back into society and then they'll be okay. That's ridiculous, right? They can't just, they can't, you can't separate them from society. And even if you did quote unquote separate them, they have to go back to society. So separating a child from their parents and then they have to go back to those parents doesn't fix anything, right? Uh, and just while I'm on this soapbox, for me, I learned over time that if I really wanted to do good work with these sorts of situations, a six-year-old who was crying a lot or a 10-year-old who was doing bad in school or a 13-year-old who was um, smoking pot every day, if I really wanted to do good work, then I didn't have to meet with the kid at all. Obviously, I could meet with the kid. But if we had limited time, limited resources, then all of my time should be spent with the parents, which to some clinicians is abhorrent to them. They're like, wait a second. So you have a kid who is struggling with school, struggling, struggling with self-esteem. They are having, you know, problems with addiction. And you're just going to ignore that. You're just going to not treat the child. And I would say the Parents, I am around at best one hour a week. The parents are around 24-7 and will be around for the rest of this child's life. What a wonderful thing it would be is if the parents could parent in a therapeutic manner. If the parents could change their parenting in such a way 
that would create attachment security for the child, create less conflict, more bonding, and be more functional for that child. And then the symptoms of pot use or self-esteem or depression or anxiety or um, school performance issues, running away from home, they will go away. Uh, because when the parents are better at their at their jobs and know what they're doing, um, and maybe I have to also treat their treat the parents' depression. Maybe I have to treat the parents' attachment issues. And once I do that, then the kids would ex- the, the the changes in the children would be much faster than if I just worked with the kids. And um, I'm fairly sure that in fifty a hundred years. Everyone will see it this way. And in the same way that John Bowlby saw it this way 100 years ago and was upset, um, I feel like we're only, you know, 20% down the road. John Bowlby got us 20% down the road. I feel like we have a long way to go, even in our own profession, to really understand the reality of humans and its relation to attachment theory. Anyway, all right. Stepping down from Soapbox. Later in an interview, John Bowlby would talk about this time, and he throughout his life he was really frustrated with the fact that uh, psychoanalysts, who were the dominant um, group of people in the field of therapy at the time, he throughout his life he was very resentful of the fact that psychoanalysts, the people, his colleagues, he he John Bowlby was a psychoanalyst. He wanted to be in the world of psychoanalysis, and they continually rejected his theories, but. Um, he later said in an interview, the social workers took to it with enthusiasm. So in other words, he's saying non-psychoanalyst therapists, which were called social workers, took to his idea of attachment with enthusiasm. The psychoanalysts treated it with caution. Curiously, and for me infuriatingly, pediatricians were initially hostile, but subsequently many of them became very supporting. So here he is saying like, you know, curiously and, you know, and infuriatingly, child medical professionals were initially hostile to the idea that parenting had anything to do with child development and adult issues. Um, He also said, adult psychiatrists, totally uninterested. They were totally ignorant, totally uninterested. So that's him talking. And so he obviously had a lot of feelings about that. And I would too, if I was him. I mean, just, so it's not, I'm not quite sure what Bowlby's motivations were, but I do think a good part of his motivation, so part of it could have just been like, I don't like it when people reject me. But I think another part of the reason why Bowlby was so upset was because when you understand attachment as a parent, as an educator, as a, as a therapist, as a medical person, then it helps you to raise healthier people to teach healthier people, to live a healthier life. And when you don't understand attachment, particularly at the time when you're sending kids away to boarding school at the age of seven and you have nannies who are, you know, fired at the, when your child is three or four years old, then without an understanding of attachment, then you're actually damaging people. You're actually harming people. One could say you're actually abusing people. This practice of sending kids to boarding school is abusive. I'm I'm just going to say that it's abusive. And an understanding of attachment theory would influence people to stop abusing their children uh, because of cultural norms at the time. And so 
I think John Bowlby really understood that and wanted people to understand his theory so that this this um, damage, this abuse could end for thousands upon thousands, millions of people around the world, you know, children and as they grow up in, into adults. And so he was very upset about this, and, and I would be too, and still am, because we still have problems. So skipping forward to the 1930s, he's now getting into the age of about 30. He continued working with children, and he continued to develop his theory about attachment. He hadn't really written about it yet, and he was just another young clinician in England working, just another psychoanalyst in training. 1936, age 30, he becomes qualified as a psychoanalyst, and in 1938, at the age of 31, he marries Ursula Longstaff, who was the daughter of a surgeon. And John Bowlby and Ursula would have four children during their marriage together. Skipping forward to 1941, he is 33 years old at this time. Sorry, did I say 1940? 1940? 1940, as the World War II was, um, um, you know, in effect <laughs> in Europe. And he is 33 years old. He, he wrote one of his early theoretical papers in which he proposed that therapists should help parents bond with their children. So this is where he's stepping forward and actually publishing and saying, you know, here is, here's what parents should be doing. Here's why. Here's my observations and that kind of thing. Again, totally weird statement at the time, totally rejected. Nobody cared. Later in the late 1940s and, and in the 1950s, other cutting-edge psychoanalysts would have similar ideas. As I talked about, Fairburn, Ronald Fairburn, had a similar idea that was within the object relations language. Um, uh, but uh, So in some ways, Fairburn was, he had one foot in Freudian, Kleinian language, but he had another foot out. I think the, the problem with Bowlby was that he, was, he saw the light so well that he was like, well, why do we need psychoan- psychoanalysis? You know, when when so much of the assumptions of psychoanalysis at the time was just not supported by evidence. You know, anyway. Um, and unless you're not familiar, at the time, if you were rejected by figures in psychoanalysis like Melanie Klein, basically you were just completely ostracized from academia because academia was dominated by psychoanalysts. And so it's sort of be like today if you were, and this is not a good example because it's actually the opposite, but say you are someone who doesn't believe in climate change, for example, and you work at a university for, you know, for climatology and you step forward and you say, well, actually I believe that climate change is not happening and that humans aren't contributing to that. Well, you're probably going to be ostracized from that community, right? Because they're going to see you as a political shill or something and someone who's dangerous. Well, it was similar to back then. If you stepped outside of psychoanalysis, you were a danger, you were a threat, and you must be wrong and you must be a charlatan or something. And so you must be rejected and ostracized from the community, which essentially would end your career in a lot of ways. And so that's what was happening to Bowlby and others, Jung, Adler, these people. 
It wasn't like you couldn't eke out a career, but it made it a lot harder. Donald Winnicott, I've, I've done a deep dive on Winnicott. He also uh, would later develop similar ideas about the relationship, although it was worded differently. I've always liked Winnicott and Fairburn when I read them. I find them to be very comforting, uh, although Fairburn can be a little dense because it's couched in a very psychoanalytic lingo, but uh, Winnicott's more accessible. But honestly, they were not as, shall we say, cutting edge or, um, I don't know, convincing as Bowlby was at the time. All right, so World War II is in full swing, as I said. He became a member of the Royal Army Medical Corps, eventually became a lieutenant colonel, pretty high up. He worked at a clinic in a child psychiatry unit. He conducted studies on officer selection procedures for the military. And by doing this, he learned more about research and statistics. Okay, because up until this point, he didn't really have much experience with that. So uh, because the Army wanted to know more about officer selection procedures of, you know, like personality tests and this kind of thing. I think I did a deep dive on this a long time ago. Um, and so Bowlby's like, huh, I know a lot more about research and statistics now. That's, that's pretty cool. He also worked for the emergency medical services for a couple of months where he worked with soldiers who had quote unquote war neurosis, which would later become called PTSD war neurosis became PTSD. So we learned about that as well. He also had a private practice in which he worked with children at Cambridge. Many of these children had been evacuated from London to avoid the bombings by the Germans. And this is uh, the, this sort of situation is the basis of the Narnia books that these children, I think C.S. Lewis kids or uh, nieces and nephews or somebody were sent away from the city to spend time with relatives in the countryside. And um, that's where, that's the basis of the Narnia books, right? If you're familiar. Well, um, in private practice, Bowlby was working with a lot of these children who were evacuated and thus separated from their parents. So this helped him to understand uh, attachment and the damage of, of separation even greater. So during this time, he revised his study from f 10 years ago, in which he worked with those 44 maladjusted teenagers. And he republished his findings now with a more, um, with more rigor with regards to research and statistics. You know, so his previous publication, it was more of a, it's like a case study, casual report. And this time he's like, I want this to be more statistically rigorous. So during World War II, 1944, he publishes the uh, his, his seminal paper, 44 Juvenile Thieves, Their Characters and Home Lives. He, uh, the main finding, again, was that 17 out of so he basically had two different uh, groups. He had 44 maladjusted teens and 44 non maladjusted teens. So 44 adjusted teenagers. And he found that 17 of the 44 maladjusted teens experienced at least six months of separation from their primary caregiver before the age of five. What, whereas in the comparison group, the 
um, kids who were adjusting well, only two of the 44 children had uh, experienced some sort of uh, separation from their primary caregivers before the age of five. So again, uh, two teenagers compared to 17. So Bowlby's like, this is pretty strong evidence, at least in this sample, that being separated from your primary caregiver, and usually that was the mother back then, before the age of five, for six months or more, can lead to at least the development of maladjusted teen behaviors such as uh, stealing and thieving. So just to bring this into modern times, contemporary times, if how many, how many people think about this in our criminal justice world? When you have a teenager who is in trouble with the law, how many uh, legal systems, how many people are thinking about, well, maybe this is related to the fact that they were separated from their primary, primary caregiver at an early age due to some other issue. How many social programs, public health programs, are focused on making sure that parents are given enough support to uh, not do this to their children so that the children will not grow up to have a multitude of problems, including causing social harm, such as thieving and crime and violence. How many tax dollars are being spent on trying to help parents not abandon their children, uh, trying to help parents be less stressed out so they can spend more time with their children, Um, trying to educate parents on how to properly raise their children, how to help parents with family planning, with uh, birth control, so that they don't have too many kids and thus neglect their kids overall. How much money is being spent on that? Um, I would say not enough. All right, so then World War II ends, and he is no longer in the Royal Army Medical Corps. 1946, he is now 39 years old, and he starts working at the Tavistock Clinic, which is very close to Freud's house in London, which I visited when I was in London last year, two years ago. I went to Freud's house that he lived in 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 London, and uh, down the street, uh, Anna Freud Clinic is actually still in operation, and the Tavistock Clinic, which is just around the corner, is also still in operation. Uh, Very very famous places in my profession. And then I... I talked about this on another podcast. I went to Freud's ashes that um, were at a you know a, a, a cemetery, and um, a groundskeeper fella, old guy, let us in because uh, in order to get into the vault that has Freud's ashes, you have to have a key. And then he proceeded to because um, a lot of people from around the world will come to Freud's ashes, and so he had taken a lot of pictures and he had all these stories to tell of different people who had come to that place. And anyway, it's a really wonderful moment. And Tavistock Clinic is, is in that area. Many famous clinicians worked at Tavistock Clinic. Mary Ainsworth, uh, Wilfred Bion, Kurt Lewin, Artie Lang, and others. Um, Bowlby became head of the children's department at Tavistock. And he promptly renamed it so, so he's like, oh, I'm going to work for the children's department. Um, what's, 
missing from this title? Well, he decided to name it the Department for Children and Parents, <laughs> which I can relate to. Um, yeah, again, totally relevant to today. Again, step back on my soapbox for a brief amount of time. A lot of the agencies in my area and around the United States, the um, area, the agencies, the departments that help youth are often called um, youth service agencies or youth and family agencies. But what I wish they would call it is youth and parenting, which is what uh, Bowlby was doing here. Let's call it the Department of Children and Parents. We're not just treating the children, we're treating the parents as well. He worked at Tavistock for the rest of his career, many, many years, and he continued to study children and their families, and he continued to find that most of the troubled children had attachment disruptions early in their lives. But he found it difficult to find colleagues to work with because most of the London uh, therapists were psychoanalysts, and they were into either Freud or Klein or some other point of view that did not include the notion that parenting had anything to do with development. So, skipping forward a couple years to 1948, Bowlby is 41 years old. He finally found someone who was willing to work with him on attachment, James Robertson, and Bowlby hired him at Tavistock. Robertson had worked under Anna Freud um, with children in London and was also starting to believe that attachment and parenting had something to do with development and he found John Bowlby, and they started working together. And I think this is an important step in Bowlby's development as an academic and as a researcher in that he finally had someone that he could work with. I think Bowlby actually really needed that. He, he had, I think he wouldn't have done as much work if he didn't have these collaborators. And I can attest to that, having a collaborator, like for this podcast, for example. If I didn't have Umberto, I don't know if I ever would have done this thing. It just feels so much better to have a team that works with you, you know. Um, so he found James Robertson, who had worked under Anna Freud, as I said. And they researched, they immediately started researching families. Uh, and they did it for two years. They continued to find in their research that children were being emotionally neglected and this was causing problems. And they were... Uh, bumping up more, you know, uh, over and over again, the fact that the fields of psychiatry and psychology and psychoanalysis were uh, ignoring this issue and and even encouraging it. They, so it wasn't that uh, clinicians at the time, medical people at the time, were just ignorant of attachment. They were actually participating in it, uh, which I'll get into in a second here. And Robertson uh, and Bowlby were finding that there were obvious negative consequences to this. And so they're upset. They're, they're watching all this bad stuff happen, and they're just like, what are we doing? How do we get people to understand what we're talking about? I mean, we're, we're writing stuff, we're giving lectures, we're publishing studies, and people aren't really believing what we're saying. And I think what they were thinking was, no one, is, no one realizes it because they can't see it. It's sort of like a similar thing to Black Lives Matter, there was a time, it's not like police uh, mistreatment of black people is a new thing to our society. It's been going on for, for centuries. The, the issue is, is that in modern times, contemporary times, we have cameras that we can actually film police in their activities, right? So we now have the ability to document 
the actual events that occurred at the at the at the time instead of relying on the police officers to uh, tell their story and then we believe them over the the others the civilians and uh so at the time i think bulby and robertson are just like uh, people need to see this they we've been trying to explain it to them but no one's believing us so we we need them to see it so and Robertson in particular was getting really fed up with this, with this problem. So they decided to make a film, their own version of, of, of what we do today with filming police officers who are doing bad things because they wanted to show other professionals that um, what's happening to children is a bad thing. And they, they published it. It's called A Two-Year-Old Goes to Hospital. A Two-Year-Old Goes to Hospital is the name of very descriptive title. You can actually watch it. There are clips of it on YouTube. In the film, Robertson and Bowlby, they follow a two-year-old girl who was in the hospital for eight days for a minor operation. So she go, you know, the two-year-old girl needs an operation, minor one. And during this, the practice at the time was to just leave people in the hospital, you know, because the resources were such that you could do this. And I don't know, they just would, you would stay in the hospital for a long time. And... Uh, the practice at the time, again, because no one understood attachment theory, including medical professionals, including parents, that they would just leave a, the child in the crib because the nurses and physicians, they have better things to do. And the, the, the mother is not encouraged because today, if you had this, the, the parents would actually spend all of their free time at the bedside, right? But back then, it was like, why would you do that? What's, what's the purpose in that? And so this two-year-old girl, for eight days, is left alone in her crib in this cold hospital room for many hours all by herself. And the mother would visit occasionally, but it wasn't very often. And when the mother did visit, the child doesn't really respond very well because she's been left alone for so long. And she resents, this two-year-old resents the fact that the mother has been abandoning her. You know, the idea goes, and Bowlby would later conceptualize this is that at the beginning of separation, the two-year-old is sad and cries out with attachment behaviors, which I'll get into in another chapter on attachment theory. But the idea goes is that the child initially cries out and, and, you know, throws a fit trying to alert people that the child is upset and trying to alert the attachment figure, the mother, that the child needs the mother. But given all the cultural notions at the time, everyone interpreted that as, as either a spoiled behavior or just like behavior that you just can ignore or should ignore. And so they all did ignore that. And so over time, what the child does by day two, the child is basically given up and is in utter despair about being abandoned and doesn't have an ability to soothe the self and might even believe that the mother will never arrive might believe like I, my mother has dropped off the face of the earth or has just completely abandoned me, that my mother is not coming. Because two-year-olds don't have the ability to really say to themselves, oh, you know, mom will be here soon. Uh, so the child, once they see their primary caregiver, the mother, they, are, they have a complicated relationship with that mother now because they've, they've decided that this mother is not a good source of soothing. And so they might not be very happy when they see mother, or they might be angry, or they might just ignore the mother. And we'll get into Ainsworth uh, in a bit. But 
So this is what they are observing in this one particular two-year-old girl. And we also see all these clips. It's really sad, actually. We see this little two-year-old girl who is emotionally distant as a result. She's being difficult. She's being depressed. She's sad. She's crying. She's wailing. It's really heartbreaking to watch. So Robertson and Bowlby very astutely show this film. And again, this is at a time, 1944, when film wasn't being used in this way very often, right? And he starts, they start to show it to hospital staff around London. They're like, okay, I just want everyone to watch this film. Hospital staff sits down to watch this film. And they, uh, you know, many were horrified when they saw this film. They're like, oh my God, this child is being mistreated. Why are we leaving children, two-year-old children in a crib in a cold hospital room by themselves for eight days? This is just awful. Uh, you, you know, and and again, Bowlby is explaining to everyone about it, his early ideas. He wasn't calling it attachment theory at the time, but his early ideas that parenting mattered and that the bond between children and, and parents matters. Um, and so, as a result, hospitals started to change their ways. They were convinced by this one film. They, uh, you know, before the film, they would have visiting hours. Uh, very limited, for example. This is just one of the ways in which hospitals changed. So before the film, they would say that parents could only come and visit the kids for one hour a day or something, and it was from you know five to six or something. After tea time, if you will. But after watching this film, hospitals changed their policies and said, we have to expand our visiting hours. Like we're, we're not even allowing parents to come and see their kids, which is very important. So let's expand our visiting hours. And that's just one of the things that they did. They probably did other things, like they might have encouraged the parents to come more often, or they might have had the kid go back home quicker because of the suffering that they saw in this film. Now, the film was not universally received well. Many accused Bowlby and Robertson for doing bad science. And I can kind of see their point, because all Bowlby and Robertson did was film one person, one child. And if you really want to understand whether or not this is a bad thing, you'd have to film dozens of kids and compare the the differences, right? Because maybe this kid is just particularly upset about being separated and, and the hundreds of other kids are doing fine when they're separated from their parents. So I get the criticism. I'm positive that if they did have the time and the money to film dozens of kids, they would find a, a definite pattern there. But, you know, many were, but, you know, if you're coming from a particular scientific philosophy that attachment and parenting don't mean anything, then looking at this, you would consider it to be dubious, right? And so, again, Robertson and um, Bowlby were not accepted by the scientific community, but it did change things in hospitals. And, and this, this work and future work that Bowlby did would affect the way hospitals treated kids around the world. So it wasn't just in London. It eventually became spread widespread throughout the world in, in, in at hospitals and clinics and how they, how they worked with kids to value the attachment between the parent and the kid. Skipping forward to 1950, this is when he is 43, and Mary Ainsworth joined his research team. I will talk about more on her later, but early um, he he saw Ainsworth as a worthy colleague, and and he she joined his team. 1951, he is age 44. 
This was when he published his World Health Organization report. Due to his fame regarding child development, partially because of this film that he had done with Robertson, the World, Horth, the World Health Organization, or WHO, commissioned him to write a report on the mental health of homeless children in Europe. Bowlby talked with a lot of researchers during this time. This was a very interesting time for him because he was paid a you know, big sum of money to do this research and uh, was able to travel and communicate with researchers of various different types all over the world and people inside psychoanalysis and many people outside psychoanalysis, many people who don't even work within the field of psychology or psychiatry or psychoanalysis. And he was asking lots of different people regarding the effects of children having been separated from their parents. At the time, the World Health Organization was very concerned about this separation uh, from parents because during World War II, so many children were separated from their parents. Uh, one reason was because many of the parents died during World War II. Uh, about 60 million civilians died around the globe during World War II. 60 million, particularly in Poland, the USSR, and Germany. It's one thing that us Americans don't really acknowledge or learn about is that, you know, to, to a lot of Americans, World War II is about D-Day and about Patton, you know, rolling into Berlin and everything. We were a very, very small part of World War II in Europe. We obviously played a big role in the Pacific, but we, the Americans were a very small part of the overall fighting and death toll of World War II. World War II, uh, if you just wanted to summarize it in one sentence, it was a war between USS, USSR and Germany. And so many Soviet people died. So many German people died, civilians and military people. And so many Polish people died because they were caught in the middle between these two superpowers. And, you know, we often think about Jewish people. So six million Jewish people Civilians also died. So of the 60 million civilians, you know, 10% of those were Jewish people. But 90% weren't. So just so many people died. So the World Health Organization was thinking, geez, you know, is, what effect is this having on kids? Because we just don't really know. And we don't have any theories to help us understand if anything would happen or what to do about this. Also, in addition to the millions of people who died, many families were displaced and many children were separated from their parents, either temporarily or permanently during this time. And these numbers are hard to determine, but in my estimation, I would say that it was probably 10 times the amount of people were displaced and separated from their parents. So we, we potentially have tens of millions of children separated from their parents during World War II. So he looked at, you know, he, he talked with a lot of researchers and he talked to a lot of families and he talked to a lot of children. And what he found was three different main things. Number one is a strong, consistent bond between mother and child results in better mental health outcomes, particularly early in life. So a strong, consistent bond between parent and child results in better things for that child particularly early in life. Number two, parental kindness does not spoil children. 
So this is a very important finding that was revolutionary at the time, was that when parents are kind to their children, this does not actually cause problems. In fact, it actually helps mental health. So this was revolutionary at the time, that uh, being kind to your children was actually a good thing and didn't damage your children. So I've been you know talking about this throughout this episode, but how weird it was during this time to think that academics and everyone considered that being kind to children was bad. And it just makes you wonder that how many wars and atrocities were happening in Europe because of these weird parenting practices. If if Hitler was more secure in his attachment, would he have done what he did? I would speculate no. In fact, I've been doing a mini uh, research into doing a deep dive on Adolf Hitler. And although there's no way to know, there's strong evidence that Hitler suffered from difficult attachment issues. And in my speculation, based, based on my lens of the world, that played a major role in his issues that he uh, tried to cope with through his various different, um, you know, political and narcissistic endeavors. The third finding that Bowie came up with in the WHO report was that punishment was often not helpful to development of kids. He found that disobedience in children was mainly due to separation from the parents. So again, mind-blowing, and to some extent mind-blowing today, and something that I often talk about with parents parenting, is that children obey their parents not because of a good system of discipline. Parent, kids, kids obey their parents because of a good system of attachment. I mean, think about yourself. When you, as an adult, when you're at work and you have a boss that punishes you swiftly and harshly whenever you do bad things, like you show up to work late uh, by five minutes and you're uh, or someone shows up late and the boss fires that person. Well, now you're terrified and you don't feel very safe with your boss, right? Well, now, not only is your anxiety going to result in uh, difficulty doing your job during the day, but you're also just generally, imagine this is chronic. You have, you have five years of watching your boss treat people, including yourself, badly. And then your boss comes to you and asks you for a favor you know, what's the likelihood you're going to do that favor? Or what's the likelihood you're going to do it just to the minimum effort, right? Now, take scenario two, where your boss and you really feel safe with your boss, and you really have a good bond with your boss. Now, you're not necessarily friends, but you feel good. You know, your boss supports you, compliments you, uh, makes you feel at ease, really cares about your experience working there. And then your boss comes to you and says, hey, you know, I, I have a favor. Could you do this? It'd be really great if you did this. The chance that you're going to do that is much higher in that situation, right? It's not mind-blowing to think about that. Well, the same applies to parenting. When you are a child and you have a good bond with your parent and your parent asks you to do something, you will want to do it out of the goodness of your heart because you love your parent and you have a good bond with that parent. Whereas if you have a general sense that your parent doesn't really like you that much and is often angry and often punishing of you, then you're generally not, you might follow the rules in this overt fashion to, to avoid the pain of punishment, but 
in an ongoing generalized basis, you're probably not going to follow the rules very often, especially as you grow into a teenager and actually have the power to push back. So this is something that Bowlby put forth in 1951 that is still not being really uh, listened to by many people. Certainly there are a lot of parents that understand this, this notion. Um, it's not revolutionary to many parents, but, but I would suspect whenever I talk, I, as a family therapist, I don't do this anymore. I, my practice currently is not, um, I, for whatever reason, it's small and I only treat um, couples and adults. But back in the day for, you know, 10, 15 years, I worked with a lot of parents and the uh, knee jerk reaction when they had a disobedient kid was to quote unquote have structure. And there'd be a lot of therapists that would participate in this. They'd be like, Oh, you need more structure. You need to be more consistent. And, I would find that that was just not a good approach. Now, certainly having a consistent discipline or a consistent approach or having good structure, so to speak, is, is great. That's a wonderful thing. It's, it, you know, it's, it's not a bad thing, but it has to be upon a foundation of a strong attachment and bond, a strong love, a strong sense of goodwill, uh, a sense of fun, a sense of, of uh, kindness and liking the other person. When the child has that with their parent, then they're just naturally obedient because they want your approval and they care. You know, children, when you give them love, they give you obedience. When you give them grace, they give you love back and they give you obedience back. When you don't give them love, then they give you disobedience. When you give them punishment and meanness and distance, then children give back disobedience. In a way, it's a protest. It's a way of telling the parents, I don't like the way you're treating me. I wish things were different. And they don't have a way of communicating that. So uh, Bowlby found this. Again, his main findings, a strong, consistent bond between parent and child results in better mental health outcomes. Number two, parental kindness does not spoil children. It actually helps the children to develop. And number three, punishment was not always helpful and that disobedience was mainly due to separation from the parents. His report was uh, both loyal to psychoanalysis and heretical to psychoanalysis. So he clearly wanted to be accepted in the psychoanalytic community back then. Um, And I think throughout his life, honestly, because again, it was the dominant profession in, in, uh, in, in the field of helping people, you know, right? So, In this report, in the World Health Organization report, 1951, he used a lot of psychoanalytic terms like love object, libidinal ties, superego, and he even used Kleinian terms, right? Because Klein Klein was his supervisor back in the day. So he was clearly trying to appeal to those people. But his ideas were completely counter to psychoanalysis. This is similar to what Winnicott went through and what Fairburn went through. They tried to have one foot in psychoanalysis while also having uh, language and theory that fit the empirical evidence that they found, which at times was completely counter to mainstream psychoanalysis. I should point out that when we talk about psychoanalysis, we can't really talk about it as a uniform thing. Freud himself had four different phases in his theory that are really quite different, Um, particularly his trauma theory was very different from his, his other stages of, of his theory. So it's sort of a, a multitude of ideas. But what I'm talking about psychoanalysis in this episode, I'm mainly talking about mainstream psychoanalysis for the time. 
And to some extent, mainstream psychoanalysis at the time was not really held by Freud. Like if Freud were alive at the time, he might have said something like, I don't think you guys are following my theory quite right. I think you're overemphasizing certain things that shouldn't be. So just keep that in mind. So anyway, uh, Bowlby in this World Health Organization used a lot of a report for the WHO. He used a lot of psychoanalytic terms, but he also had many ideas that were counter to psychoanalysis. For example, he did away with the psychosexual stages, the anal phase, the phallic phase, that kind of stuff, and instead replaced it with the emphasis on the relationship between the parent and the infant, right? So that was heretical and uh, shocking to psychoanalysis. He also did away with the notion of the, uh, that the superego is formed by the resolution of the Oedipus complex. Instead, he asserted that ego and superego are formed by the parent-child interaction. In other words, uh, you know, mainstream Freudians believed that when we, as children, are hostile to our same-sex parent because we want to possess our opposite-sex parent, and this is, of course, mainly focused on young boys because that was, you know, the misogyny of the day or the sexism of the day, I should say. And that through that resolution, you develop a superego. You develop your notions of right and wrong, your morality, your self-restraint, that kind of thing. Because prior to the resolution of the Oedipus complex, you have all these unbridled aggressions and that kind of thing. And through the... Um, resolution inside your own mind that when you you emerge with a superego. Well, he asserted that not only the superego, but actually the ego, in other words, the self, the personality, the sense of who you are, these things are developed through the parent-child interaction, not through a resolution of the Oedipus complex. Again, totally revolutionary for the time, but obvious to us today, mostly because of John Bowlby, in my opinion. In the report, he also broke away from psychoanalysis by identifying that society was a factor. This is amazing. So let me quote him here. Just as children are absolutely dependent on their parents for sustenance, so are parents, especially their mothers, dependent on greater society for economic provision. If a community values its children, it must cherish their parents. I love this so much. It's just amazing. 1951. If Bowlby were alive today, he would still be trying to get us to understand this. If we value children, then we must value the parents. We must understand that parents, especially mothers, because they're often designated as the primary caregiver, that parents, or shall we just say, you know, parents in general, regardless of gender, are dependent on the greater society for lots of things. And Bowlby identifies economic provision, meaning that they need money to function so that they can have the resources to care for their children well. But I would say, you know, broadening this out, that we need to support them emotionally. We need to not marginalize the parents. We need to give them time off for, um, for parenting issues and this kind of thing. So if... Uh, so back then, he, he said society was a factor, which mainstream psychoanalysis was definitely not on board with. I mean, if they're not on board with the parent-child interaction, then they're definitely not on board with the society-child and, and society-parent interaction. Uh, 
in the report, he his main assertions were that empirical observation demonstrates that the mental health of children is a function of the relationship between child and parents. So he's saying through empirical observation, we have found that the uh, relationship between child and parent absolutely is a major factor in that child's development and their functionality and their adaptation and their mental health issues. He also asserted that we need to help children experience a warm and continuous relationship with their parents or permanent caregivers. He also asserted that it's best for uh, it's best when both the caregiver and the child find satisfaction and enjoyment in the relationship. So this is actually an interesting distinction. I don't think I've, I've talked about yet was that, it's the experience of the child and the parent that, that is important. That it's not that you prescribe a bunch of behaviors or set up a, a scenario where it looks like something good is happening. It actually is critical that the child experience the relationship as satisfactory and that the parent also experience the relationship with the child as satisfactory. You can't just act like things are going well. You can't, it has to, it's a subjective experience that Bowlby was trying to get at. And again, this was totally breaking from the mainstream psychoanalytic thinking and also the broader societal ideas and and the medical profession. He was breaking from everything. And again, to us in our ears today, we're like, well, well, of course, this is no doubt. Well, we can thank John Bowlby for setting us on the right path here. Now, one criticism of this report that is really throughout Bowlby's work was that the father was de-emphasized. Whenever, so I'm, in, I'm inserting all these wor- words like caregiver or primary care- caregiver, but Bowlby actually just referred to the person as the mother, the mother and child. There was never the father. The father was completely secondary. And it's just a cultural thing that I think Bowlby gave into. And also it was just probably 99.9% of the time, the primary care- caregiver was the mother. So why not just refer to the primary caregiver as the mother? Today, we have uh, many primary caregivers are the, are the father. We also have gay uh, men who will adopt, gay men marriages who will adopt children. So there's not a female in sight. And so you have two fathers. And a lot of research looks into this that development is, is fine, that the issues are the same. You have to be attuned to the children and that gender doesn't affect that. So um, uh, he did comment on fathers. He would say that sometimes when the mother died or was separated from the child, that you would uh, be good to find a permanent mother substitute. He called them permanent mother substitutes, which he said could be the father, but could be other women. So, so men and fathers were really marginalized in this in, during this time and during uh, Bowlby's early work. The report was very popular, uh, especially for a report of this sort. It sold 400,000 copies, uh, just its English paperback version alone. So I don't know how many it sold total, but imagine a report uh, of this you know, description selling almost half a million copies. Like that, it was extremely popular and it propelled. So Bowlby became popular from his work and also that film that he made. And that gave him the ability to make this report, and it was a well-funded report. And it was such; it was so well-written and so well-researched. And 
again, because of that learning he got from World War II in terms of statistics and how to be convincing in an academic sense, uh, he, this was really a culmination of every, everything he had done. So, you know, he's in his 40s now, and he just nails it with this report, and it just sells like hotcakes. And he becomes, you know, hugely popular and influential, still completely rejected by psychoanalysis, by the way, and by, by many others. Uh, but he was definitely on the map. And this report further convinced society and clinicians and hospitals to change their ways, uh, to change their parenting practices. It influenced public policies that were encouraging mothers to work instead of being with their children. So there, there were public policies that were like, well, if we're going to build our economy after World War II, we have to, everyone has to work. We, we, we can't have mothers staying home. They got to go to work. And so there are all these tax incentives and policies put in place to separate mothers from their children and get them to go to work because the economy was suffering and, and they wanted that to happen. And because they had no idea that separating children from their parents is a bad thing. After this report, public uh, officials started changing those policies like, whoa, whoa, whoa. (laughs) Okay, great. If we put mothers to work, that will help our economy. But what kind of horribleness are we enacting on children? And two, just to get to the nuts and bolts on this, according to to this empirical study, these children are going to grow up to be bad for society. They're going to commit more crimes. They're going to, uh, you know, do a lot of bad things. And so we have to uh, put an end to that. We have to stop encouraging parents uh, to work outside the home. Um, So that was that. Let's go on to the 1950s. This was when John Bowlby discovered Donald Winnicott, another British psychoanalyst. And he uh, John Bowlby considered Winnicott to be an influence on him and an important colleague for himself. Uh, Winnicott also studied under Melanie Klein. Uh, Bowlby liked Winnicott because they saw things very similarly. They influenced each other because they, bro- they both broke from Freudian thought by asserting that the relationship between parent and child is very important. Uh, Winnicott thought that all the world's problems could be solved by good parenting. And he really tried to change society through his publications. And I did a deep dive on Winnicott, like I said, and he, Winnicott had a radio show in the UK, a serialized radio show in which he talked to parents on how they could parent better. So this radio show, he would come on and he would give advice to parents in the UK during the fifties on how to be a good parent. And Winnicott was very similar to Bowlby. But Winnicott kept his language within psychoanalytic theory, although many considered Winnicott to be uh, apocryphal. Apocryphal? Not apocryphal. Uh, Heretical. (laughs) Uh, But uh, Bowlby would really break away and be really rejected by psychoanalysis, whereas Winnicott is still considered to be within the field of, of psychoanalysis. Also during this time in the 1950s, Mary Ainsworth conducted her first seminal research study with families in Uganda, which um, is a famous study that I should mention here. I'll get more into Mary Ainsworth later. So skipping forward to 1957, he's now 50 years old. He's 
found these findings and he's doing work and he's doing research and he's training people. <clears throat> and he has been trying to change psychoanalysis, right? He, he keeps trying to push psychoanalysis to this other level, but he's not getting any success. So Bowlby starts to look for other theories to adopt. He doesn't want to devise his own theory. He's looking for some other theory that he can expand on that will accept him, some other academic field. And uh, because in the psychoanalytic notion, just to uh, talk about this again, because it was the main notion about child development at the time, was that the child was mainly concerned, early infants were mainly concerned with oral gratification, not the bond. So in other words, the only reason the child prefers the mother is because the mother is the object that provides oral pleasure to the child. Now, when we hear the phrase oral pleasure, we think of naughty things, but just think of anyone who has raised a young infant knows that infants definitely take a tremendous amount of pleasure orally by breastfeeding or bottle feeding or putting things in their mouth that they are exploring. There's a lot of a lot of uh, things having to do with the mouth. And when they you put a, a pacifier in the child's mouth and they they are instantly soothed. So it it's it was observed by Freudians and the interpretation that Freudians had of this was that well ch- you know children are born with a need for oral, oral gratification and when they are given oral gratification then they adjust well. Um and by implication, it doesn't really matter where they get the oral gratification from. They can get it from anybody. So in other words, they would look at, you can separate a child from their mother and have them breastfeed with someone else or have them bottle feed with someone else and the child will develop fine. So it had nothing to do with the particular person. It just had to do with the oral pleasure, right? Bowlby, of course, didn't agree with this notion. He observed that children actually don't react this way, that it, it sure, children uh, get a lot of oral pleasure, a lot of oral uh, pleasure soothes them, but they develop early in life a bond with a particular person, and that oral pleasure is really secondary to, the, um, to being born with an innate need to attach. So to put it simply, Bowlby was like, we're not born with an innate need for oral pleasure as much as we are born with an innate need to attach to a particular human. Normally, it's our mothers. So that was the site. So he he was like, well, obviously, psychoanalysis is not going to accept me because they're rigid and they have this totally different point of view. The other dominant theory at the time was social learning theory by behaviorists. So behaviorists were pretty big at the time as well. And what they held was that children depend on their parents because the parents give them food, not due to a biological evolutionary need for attachment. So they would say, so behaviorists are like, well, the reason why children react favorably to their parents is because the parents give them food and that gives them a reward. And then they associate their parents with that reward and are happy when they see their parents. So again, pretty awful uh, point of view, right? It's like um, parenting has nothing to do with the bond, has nothing to do with the attachment, has nothing to do with love. It's just this 
robotic experience of like, well, that's the, that's the human that gave me food, so I'm going to be nice to that human. I've actually heard this argument about pets. It's beginning to change as more people experience more pets and we start expanding our notion of you know, who has a soul and that kind of thing. But I, I've had many people say this to me. I mean, anyone who has had a cat or a dog understands that this is not true. But uh, there's this notion out there that's diminishing, like I said. But there's this notion out there that the only reason why your dog or your cat is nice to you and purrs when they see you or wags their tail when they see you is because you're the thing that gives them food. And this is a tempting belief, but not empirically true. Uh, For example, with my cats, I eventually got so tired of them begging me for food every time I entered the kitchen that I bought these timed release food dispensers. And I had those things for years. So for many years, my, most of my cat's life with me, they were fed by this robot. And yet my cats were extremely nice to me and loved me all the time because cats have evolved over time to uh, be very uh, cuddly and very bonding with humans, uh, just as dogs have, and so or domesticated pet dogs, right? So uh, in the same way that... Um, We love our parents and our parents love us because we are born with an innate need to love and an innate need to attach regardless of food, regardless of oral gratification. Uh, These social pets also have that behavior. That's really quite obvious to me. So in his search to find a theory that would be congruent with his findings and his ideas of human development, he eventually found the field of ethology. So ethology is essentially evolutionary psychology for non-human animals. They looked at other animals and their behavior and tried to figure out instincts and behaviors that were related to evolution. You know, why would this animal do this behavior? How did, how did this behavior evolve? You know, what selective advantage did this behavior Uh, grant this species. And they looked at how um, uh, other animals evolved, like, uh, and also the relationship between the parent and child and other species. Like, for example, they, uh, a famous one, which I'm sure you've all heard of, is the observation that geese have a critical period in which they imprint onto a caregiver. Usually this is their, their mother, the mother goose, but they can even imprint onto humans. They, if, if, the, if a human is around during that critical period of the infant geese, then they will forever consider that human to be their caregiver. And again, this has nothing to do with feeding or oral gratification. It was considered an ingrained drive to bond with a caregiver. So uh, in other words, the uh, person that they are imprinted on they're forever imprinted on that person. And even if another person comes along and starts feeding the geese, the geese will run to their imprinted caregiver. Um, another study looking further at this, 1935, by Lorenz, found that infant geese become attached to parents who didn't even feed them. So, uh, so that, you know, because some people are like, well, 
they're only imprinting on you because you're feeding them. Well, this study by Lorenz was like, well, let's see if these geese will imprint on humans, even if you don't feed them. And they found that yes. So what the finding is, is that attachment is a drive in and of itself, that it is not necessarily uh, a part of the feeding system or the um, Oedipus system, if you will. So, um, uh, so this is another reason why I think Bowlby's theory was rejected over time was because he was pulling in other theories like ethology and uh, psychotherapy, psychoanalysis, and even till to, to today, we tend to what we call silo, which means that we consider other uh, other disciplines to be substandard to us or something that we should ignore. Like social psychology will look down on psychotherapy, which will look da- you know, and um, psychiatry will look down on blah blah blah. And even within my field, I can t- I can speak from authority on this is that. Even within the field of psychotherapy, we have marriage and family therapy, we have counseling, we have psychology, we have social work. All four of these silos will uh, not intermingle very much. And uh, so I think when Bowlby started going into ethology as a psychoanalyst, people started thinking, oh, well, he's just a stupid ethologist who cares about him anymore, so we'll reject him. So he decided that so once he figured out ethology and he uh, started thinking, wow, you know, this theory really fits with my observation of humans. Cause up until this point, he wasn't really thinking of it as a evolutionary process, but through his uh, research and, and reading up on ethology, he integrated these two notions into what would later become attachment theory. And he presented his formal statements of his ethologically based attachment theory to the British Psychoanalytic Society in 1957 in a paper titled The Nature of the Child's Tie to His Mother. The Nature of the Child's Tie to His Mother. So up until this point, he had not been publishing, or sorry, up until this point, he had been publishing his observations and recommendations only, not a unified theory. So this is his first foray into trying to convince people of an overarching theory of attachment. In this paper, Bowlby argued that the mother-child attachment is a evolutionary process. It has an evolutionary basis. In other words, he speculated that attachment helps the child to survive by increasing the proximity between parent and child, and that we evolved to stay close to our parents and run to our parents when we're afraid or upset. And we evolved uh, and we evolved to keep our children close as well. So parents and children have evolved processes that keep the parent and child close. These processes are behavioral and they're also emotional. So not only do babies cry, which is a behavior when they're separated from their parents, but they also will have an emotion of feeling sad or scared. And as parents also will, uh, you know, watch their infants, they will behaviorally pay attention to their infants. They will also report emotions upon being close to their infants or being separated from their infants. And the whole idea here, the whole revolutionary idea, which is just incredibly profound, is that these are evolved processes that for those 
in our species who had these processes, these instincts that we're born with, we were much more likely to survive and pass along those instincts to the next generation. So that's an important development in Bowlby's attachment theory. And I consider it to be highly compelling. Again, it was rejected by the psychoanalytic community. Even Bowlby's own analyst didn't like his theory. Joan uh, Revere, Revere, I'm not sure how to pronounce her last name, but so Bowlby went to a therapist and Bowlby's own therapist did not like Bowlby's theory, thought it was stupid. Anna Freud spoke out against uh, Bowlby during this time. So it was, it was very, you know, to us today, it's like, yeah, go John Bowlby. But imagine just being alone and criticized and being considered a hack, even though you're so right. You know, just, you, you just know it's right. And everyone's just like, oh, that your ideas are stupid. You know, I can't believe you're doing this. You're, you're a disgrace, all this kind of stuff. It, you know, must have felt really awful for him. And I can't help wondering if attachment had something to do with that process between him and the broader profession. Was he trying to get back at his parents by rebelling against the you know, society of psychoanalysis? Was he distrustful of psychoanalysis that led him to open his mind to the notions of attachment theory because he had retained his distrust of attachment figures because of the way he was treated early in life. It just makes you wonder, you know. All right, skipping forward to 1958, Bowlby's work influenced ethologist Harry Harlow. Some of you might know Harlow. He studied attachment with rhesus monkeys. So this was an ethology study looking into rhesus monkeys it's a famous study published in 1958. These are American researchers. You can actually find th- this on YouTube. It's pretty w- uh, widely um, you know, disseminated on, on YouTube, various different angles from this and, and the original reports, I believe. So if you're not familiar, th- what they did is they looked at these small monkeys, and what they did was they had um, – a monkey, a, an infant monkey in a cage by themselves, and they had two different quote unquote mothers in with the cage. One quote unquote mother was a mother that had food, had a had a nipple with milk, but it was made out of wire, so it was not very cuddly, but it provided food. The other quote unquote mother monkey was made out of um, carpet and fuzzy things, <laughs> but didn't feed the rhesus child. And they, through experimentation, saw that when the rhesus monkey was afraid or when the rhesus child monkey needed to be comforted, and and really most of the time, the monkey would hang on the fur mother and would only go to the wire mother when when the rhesus monkey needed food. So it would, it would go, it would feed with the, with the feeding mother that was made out of wire and would instantly go back to the fur mother. So right away we see that feeding a uh, you know, young member of a species doesn't mean that they become attached to that mother, right? That it has much more to do with other, other issues, such as um, the fuzziness of, of a mother, if you will. Now... A lot of people will 
look at these studies and rightfully so consider them to be unethical and that you're really mistreating these young monkeys. And, um, you know, uh, there's a lot of bad things that are happening to animals. And um, I'm guessing people are up in arms about this one because it's just filmed and famous. So there's a lot of outcry about it. But anyway, so it's hard to watch. <laughs> so if you decide to watch it on YouTube, be be warned. But anyway, so this became a really popular thing. And Harlow was was published and it became famous. And this was supportive of the emerging theory that John Bowlby was putting forth. All right. So skipping forward to 1959, he published, John Bowlby published Separation Anxiety. This is a seminal work in which he elaborated on his attachment theory. He talked about how children will develop excessive anxiety when they're separated from their parents. For example, when they're abandoned by their parents, either by actual abandonment, like the parents uh, you know, leave the kids, or when there are threats to abandonment, like the parent might say something like, if you don't behave yourself, I'm going to drop you off at the orphanage or something like that. I actually have a client that that's what happened to them. Another example is if a family member becomes ill or dies and the child might feel responsible for that, that's also another uh, separation that children will go through that can result in excessive anxiety. He also wrote about how mistreated children might appear to be doing okay. They might appear independent. They might, they might appear mature. But deep down, they are terrified of being alone and abandoned. He, this would later be termed as avoidant attachment. So we'll get into that more later. But um, he, So he, not, he noticed that some kids seem like they're doing okay, but in reality, they're really not. And they will have a lot of symptoms uh, as a result of it. He also wrote about how, uh, through observation, that children will go through different stages after being separated from their parents. The first stage is protest. So this is the stage in which a child, upon being separated from their parents, will start to cry. They'll yell. They'll throw a tantrum, this kind of thing. So this is the protest of protest phase of being separated from parents. The second phase is despair. So this is when the child gives up protesting because they believe that it's over, like that my parent, no matter how much I scream and wail, my parent isn't coming back, and I am in despair. I am not feeling very good. And then the third phase is detachment or denial. This is the phase where uh, the despair kind of wears off, and the child learns, look, if, if I have to move on, I have to figure out a way to move on from this loss, and the way that I will do this is by detaching or going into denial uh, of the issues. Uh, I will detach in general to all people. Bowlby also spoke out uh, pointedly against Freud and the Freudian theory in this publication, Separation Anxiety, 1959. So before he was sort of trying to appeal to psychoanalysis, in this publication, he's just full on going after Freudian theory. And he talks about how uh, the Freudian notion that children are harmed when mothers are good or nice to children or gratify the children, he refuted that uh, children are harmed by that. Uh, Bowlby actually tried to let Freud off the hook a little bit by saying that the uh, language in the, public, in the psychoanalytic uh, literature was 
not as precise. So he was saying that um, – so, so the Freudian notion was that when mothers over-gratify their children, this causes harm. But, but Bowlby found that this over-gratification actually helps with development, that when – particularly when you have a child that's, say, birth to two years old, over-gratifying a child actually will help them in, in the future and their development, and there will be better outcomes, for example, not being a criminal later in life. And what Bowlby was saying was the Freudian literature should be reworded as pseudo-affection. He thought that Freud was actually – talking about pseudo-affection and, and speaking out against that because pseudo-affection is when the mother is acting like she has affection as an overcompensation or as a masking of unconscious hostility. And that, of course, that will cause harm to a child because the child will kind of pick up on the fact that it's not real affection. And so Bowlby was trying to say we should rework that. All right, skipping forward one year to 1960, when John Bowlby is 53 years old, he published two works. One was The Psychoanalytic Study of the Child, and the other was Grief and Mourning in Infancy and Early Childhood. So in this publication, it's uh, an elaboration of his attachment theory, but particularly around grief. And he talked about how there, are, there were different thoughts up until uh, what he was writing about. He reviews Anna Freud and Melanie Klein, who were the prevailing theories at the time. Simply put, Anna Freud believed that young children don't really grieve because they don't have a self yet. So they don't really grieve when they're separated from their parents. And that children don't really attach to particular caregivers. And if their parents move away and separate from the child, the child will be fine as long as there's, there is a sufficient replacement. So this, again, was the predominant uh, notion at the time was that as long as children have their needs met, it doesn't really matter who meets those needs, was the assertion. Melanie Klein believed that the biggest trauma and loss of an infant were experienced by being weaned from the mother's breast. Melanie Klein was very focused on the breast um, for some good reasons, but also some odd reasons. And uh, so Klein didn't believe that being separated from the mother was a trauma to the child, but by uh, not having access to the breast. So again, this is a uh, simplistic way of looking at attachment, right? It's like, well, the only reason why the child is interested in the mom is because the mom has a breast, has a uh, oral gratification device, has a, a food device on, on, the, on the mother, and that eye contact with the mother or relationship with the mother outside of that breast is irrelevant to it. And, of course, to us contemporary people, this is really silly. Um, but anyway, John Bowlby asserted that when children are separated from their parents, bad things happen, particularly if the separation is long-term, and that it doesn't necessarily have anything to do with the breast or it doesn't have anything to do with um, uh, you know, randomness. It, it, it has to do with the relationship between two human beings. The, the child identifies a caregiver as a primary attachment figure. And if they're separated from that person, even if their needs are met, they will have um, uh, difficulty and bad outcomes. He also wrote during this time about how children exhibit a number of behaviors oriented towards caregivers. These are things that we would later call attachment behaviors. 
So this is when Bowlby is observing infants and young children and, and, and framing it within attachment theory. And so he saw that young children would suckle or suck or they would cling or they would follow their primary attachments or they would smile at their primary attachments or cry when their primary attachments went away. And so this is Bowlby's ethology influence. He is trying to observe the human animal and its behavior and how it relates to evolution. Bowlby observed and wrote about how these attachment behaviors become increasingly focused on a particular caregiver after about six months. So he started to look at the sequence of development of attachment behaviors, and he found that at about six months is when you see infants start to identify a particular caregiver as a a preference to other caregivers. After publishing these things, many criticized him as being too mechanistic, as being too simplistic, as being reductionistic, which I find to be hilarious that people would consider him to be reductionistic. Um, They would criticize him him for not being psychoanalytic enough or for misunderstanding psychoanalytic theory. It was just, you know, how dare he sort of a thing. Even... Much later, up until 1987, there were people who would speak out against Bowlby in the psychoanalytic community. Uh, One quote from one person, they wrote that Bowlby, quote, treats humans as though they were animals, unquote, which is a hilarious criticism. Um, Treats humans as though they were animals. How is he supposed to treat them? As if they're separate from animals? (laughs) They're not animals? And this is all kind of weird because there were other people in the psychoanalytic community who actually talked in a way about attachments, but not in the in the, such an overt way. Even Anna Freud had publications going back to as early as 1944 in which she recognized the importance of early attachments. But it, it was it just was done sort of underneath all of the main psychoanalytic ideas. Around this time, Rene Spitz spoke out against Bowlby's theory, quote, When submitting new theories, we should not violate the principle of parsimony in science by offering hypotheses, which in contrast to existing theory, becloud the observational facts, are oversimplified, and make no contribution to the better understanding of observed phenomena, unquote. So this is a fancy way of saying that Bowlby's attachment theory is fanciful, too simplistic, and uh, doesn't uh, align with empirical observation and doesn't contribute anything, uh, any understanding to uh, our human experience, which I find to be laughable. Um, And despite all this mistreatment, Bowlby remained a member of the British Psychoanalytic Society for the rest of his life. But beyond 1960, he never really looked for them. Really, then he never really looked to them for support after this point because it was like he was becoming much more confident in his writing, much more confident in his theory, much more confident in his empirical observations. And beyond 1960, he's just like, okay, I give up. I can't. I can't get these people to understand me. So, never mind. But I will stay a member of the psychoanalytic community because. I have loyalty to that, or I've always wanted that approval or something. It's hard to know what he was going through. All right, so let's skip forward to 1963. 
the year that JFK died, the year that the Beatles came on the scene. And uh, Bowlby is 56 years old. Now is when we're going to start to get into Mary Ainsworth. She was a major figure in attachment theory development. So let's talk about one of her. Uh, let's go into more detail about something that happened with her in 1963. She started in 1963 a very important research project called the Baltimore Project, in which she studied 26 Baltimore families with newborns. Uh, these were all white families, by the way. They were all middle class. They all had two parents at the home. And at the beginning of the, of the study, all these families had children in the home who were between the ages of zero and four and a half years old. And over the uh, like seven years time, they did 18 home visits and each visit was four hours long. Mary Ainsworth would observe the families and take notes on the interactions between the child and the parents. Again, spanning seven years. So you get to see like the development of the interactions over seven years with these 26 families. This is a big deal. It's very expensive. takes a lot of effort. Uh, you have to trust that it'll all be worth it. Um, <clears throat> whenever I advise people about their dissertation projects as they're developing it, one of the things that I always like to ask them is like, well, what if your findings, because a lot of people will choose studies to do as their dissertations, I'll say, what if your findings are actually the reverse of what you hope that they are? Will that, how will you feel about that? And people will be like, oh my God, you know, all that work and I've, the finding actually is, is a null hypothesis or the reverse of, of my hypothesis. How awful would that be? And, you know, for those of you that do research, you totally understand this, right? And Mary Ainsworth goes into this thing, seven years, lots of effort. She's trying to prove a point in all likelihood that attachment is a thing. But what if it doesn't pan out that way? And that would be demoralizing. And that is something that could absolutely have happened. You just never know. And uh, so it's a big deal that Mary Ainsworth did this and was funded to do so. And this was one of the first times that anyone had ever done a study like this. You know, back in 1963, there wasn't a lot of effort in this area. Um, and so it was a very important study. And she used an interesting methodology. Usually researchers in studies like this, when they're observing families, they will try to stay as, quote unquote, neutral as possible. So they'll just record the frequency of behaviors. It's very dry. But Ainsworth coded for the meaningfulness of the behaviors, like how intense the exchange was or how happy the child seemed. So there's some interpretation there that Ainsworth uh, put into it, which, of course, is much more important than just coding for behaviors. I mean, just coding for behaviors is, is great. There's, it's good data. But another data, much more important data point is how intense the bond was, how intense the exchange was, how appreciative the child seems with the exchange, not particular behaviors. And so Ainsworth tried to code for that as well. She looked at feeding times, times when you were feeding the child, she looked at face-to-face -face interactions between child and parent. She looked at what happened when the child cried. She looked at when an infant was greeting a, a parent as they returned to them or when the infant followed the parent. She looked at the attachment exploration balance, meaning the balance between a child's attachment behaviors of trying to seek attachment with the caregiver as opposed to when the child is exploring the world and turning away from the parent to explore the world. She looked at obedience and 
the close body contact between parent and child. She looked at approach behavior as a, as a child approached the parent. What did they do? And she also coded for affectionate behavior between the two people. So very detailed look over seven years with 26 families in Baltimore. Mary Ainsworth, she found that there was variation in the way parents responded to their children, a lot of variation. Some parents were really responsive to their children, and some parents were not. Some parents really noticed their children in in terms of their emotional states, and some parents simply did not. Some parents responded very quickly to their children's crying, and uh, other parents completely ignored the crying of their children. So there, there was this huge variation. For example, during breastfeeding, some mothers and infants worked really well together, but some mothers had difficulty noticing and responding to the cues from the babies, and the children would often, would often struggle during breastfeeding. So Mary Ainsworth would notice this difference, that, that there were some infant mother you know, dyads where the breastfeeding process went fairly smoothly, where there were other mothers and infants where the breastfeeding process went, was very difficult for them, and the child reacted in a lot of different ways. Ainsworth found that when parents respond well to their children, the child does not become spoiled, as was believed at the time. Again, it's a weird concept, but she found this is more evidence that Bowlby also found that um, when you um, respond well to children, when you respond to their needs, when you give them what they want, when you uh, love them and take care of them and gratify their needs, the child actually is not only uh, not damaged by that, that the child actually is benefited by that. They actually mature more rapidly. The child cries less often. The child communicates more easily with the parents without needing to cry. And she found that the children were more independent. So this is completely counterintuitive to people at the time. And quite honestly, to many parents of today, that when it's, and this is the basis of attachment parenting, that when a child is, say, zero to three, when they cry, when they demand things, if you figure out a way to help them by meeting their needs, by gratifying them, they are actually given a chance to mature to a point where they stop demanding for so much of things and they are more empathetic to other people and more likely to be able to soothe themselves or uh, ask for things in an empathetic way, in a way that's nice. Whereas when you quote-unquote use tough love with a two-year-old, they end up uh, maturing more slowly. They end up crying more often. They, may, they, en- they end up retaining their demanding behavior into later stages of childhood, in fact, into adulthood. And so um, that's what she found. Uh, she also found a direct correlation between some very important uh, behaviors. She found that when parents respond quickly to crying in the first number of months of an infant's life, that this was directly correlated with less crying in the child when the child was four years old. So very discreet finding here that when, when, it, when it took not very much time for parents to run to their infant at three months old, six months old, when they were crying, 
that the child actually cried less often when they were older. She also found a correlation between when the parents held the child a lot in the beginning of life, the child later in life sought less contact. So this is important, again, to note that at the time, and many people today believe that if you coddle your child, they will become dependent on you and want you to coddle them all the time throughout their life. But it's actually the direct opposite. This is very similar to immune system, right? As we uh, discovered that there were germs and bacteria, we tried to eliminate them from our world by using disinfectants and by, you know, antibiotic things. And what we ended up doing was creating an environment in which there were very few microbes. And we had children who were growing up in these very sterile environments and they were becoming much more sick. They were much more likely to develop um, things like asthma or allergies like to peanuts and this kind of thing. I'm not super up to date on the research, so don't quote me on those findings, but the general gist of what I'm saying has been found. And so in an effort to make things sterile to protect our children, we actually inadvertently harmed them because we didn't give them and their bodies a chance to develop uh, immune systems to particular um, incursions on their body. And so they became overly sensitive to things. And so similarly, we uh, back in the day and some people today look at uh, teenagers or adults and we think that person is too dependent. They, they require too much coddling. Well, the solution to that is to not coddle them when they're children. That will cause them to not depend on coddling later in life. But it's actually the direct opposite of that. When you coddle young children, they grow up to not need to be coddled. Uh, The theory behind this is that when you coddle a child, they learn that the world is a safe place and they feel secure in the world and they feel secure in themselves. And they can soothe themselves and they can sort of put off uh, need, needing for d- dependency because they know that around the corner it will arrive and they're not so focused on uh, other people's relationships because they just have this general sense that things will work out. Whereas if you don't coddle them when they're early in life, they grow up with this sense that the, the world is a dangerous place and that they can't really get their needs met. And so they need to constantly be vigilant trying to garner love and attention from other people because if they don't do that, they'll get no love and attention. So it's very important finding and very controversial at the time and very influential. So while we're on the topic of Mary Ainsworth, I want to also talk about her famous strange situation research. Uh, Many of you have probably heard of this. So uh, it was developed in the 60s and 70s, but and I'll get more into the specifics later when I talk about theory because it's very important. But just to go into a little bit of it here, the strange situation, I think is officially like the strange situation procedure. So um, it was a very controversial laboratory experiment at the time. It was done on primarily one-year-olds, I think. It's basically a 20-minute little lab experiment uh, with eight different sections to it. Again, I'll get into it uh, more specifically later because it is is very illuminating. But essentially, if you're not familiar, what they would do is they would bring in a mother and a child into a playroom, and there would be you know, one-way mirror observation. And the child would, they'd be, so they'd be coding all the child's behavior. And so there's a bunch of toys in the room. And so they're looking at like 
uh, initially they're looking at how does how much does the child uh, cling to the parent when they because because the idea is, is when you one year olds are scared of new things and initially anyway so when they walk into a room with the parents they're in this strange environment so they stick very closely to the mother and then a little bit later they're like okay I think I'm ready to venture off and they start looking at the toys then a stranger walks in it's a you know lab person and they walk into the room usually it's another woman and and then you code the child's behavior again children at this stage are afraid of strangers for the most part or wary of strangers anyway. And so you look at the child's behavior. What does the child do? Does the child go to the stranger? Does the child return to the mother? Does the child continue playing? What happens there? And this is, I'll go into more detail about what all the implications are to attachment style and parenting in the, in another chapter. But, and then the mother actually leaves the room alone leaving the child alone with the stranger. Then you code the behavior there. Then the mother returns, and you code the behavior that the child exhibits when the mother returns. And then there's a couple other phases, but essentially you're trying to determine uh, the different attachment style or the attachment behaviors that children go through and what that says about the security of their attachment and the parenting quality up until that point. It was extremely interesting research and is still highly regarded today and uh, was totally groundbreaking because it, it's an elegant research design that shows actual differences between infants that can be predictive of later behavior going into adulthood, which is interesting, right? So Ainsworth, Ainsworth found that Infants were much more exploratory of the room and toys when it was just the mother and the infant in the room, right? Um, but when the mother returned, right, when, so the mother leaves, the child, uh, you know, doesn't like it, the mother comes back, she found that there was a, a lot of variance in the infant behavior when the child, some of the children were happy and cuddled uh, with the mother. They're like, oh, yay, mom's back, and I'm so glad you're back, and they would cuddle with the mother. But some children didn't do this. Some children were angry at the mother and would kick or hit the mother or do aggressive things like how you left me and the child would be very hostile. And then there was this third group. So there were those two groups. And there was this third group where the children would avoid the mother when she returned, even though uh, they were upset when the mother left. So you, you would, the mother would leave, the infant would be upset, and then the mother would return and the child would act like they didn't care. So in case you're keeping track, these are secure attachment, preoccupied, anxious attachment, and avoidant attachment, dismissive attachment. These observations were combined with the observations in the home. They would look at you know, how the child and parent behaved at home, how, how things were going for the child. And what she found was that in a nutshell, more attention and love for infants meant that you had better outcomes, you had more independence, you had a lack of anger or ambivalence toward the parents. Very important things, totally in line with Bobby's theory, and Bobby loved it. Bobby loved Mary Ainsworth. <laughs> he was like, oh my God, these studies, the, the Baltimore study, the strange situation study, they're confirming all of what I've been trying to tell everybody this whole time. But again, people in the field, because they don't like change, they were being total dicks about it, and they looked at the same data. They looked at the reports by Ainsworth and Bowlby and what they found, what they thought they found 
what they asserted was that these ambivalent children were actually the mature ones. <laughs> so if you understand the research, you just, you know, it's just laughable. But um, if, so to explain this is like, so uh, you had different groups of children, right? So you had the children. So when the mother returned and you had a child that went, yay, mom's back. And the child runs to the mom and cuddles and then eventually goes back and plays with the toys. So, you know, the, the mainstream people looked at that and said, well, that's actually a child that's too dependent. There's something wrong with that child. And then they looked at the ambivalent children, the avoidant children, the children who basically just ignored their parents when they came back into the room. They looked at those kids and they said, those are the well-adjusted kids because they're not dependent. They, they've, they're, they're mature. And you know, I just find that to just to be so laughable. Because, I mean, it's a fine assertion, but what we find is that the kids who did not have the happy, cuddling response to the mother, they would grow up to have a lot of issues. Drug addiction, we'll get into more of this later, but, uh, you know, school delinquency, emotional regulation problems, a lot of psychopathologies, depression, eating disorders, um, all those things, right, are attributable or, um, you know, correlated with those early attachment classifications of insecurity. All right, so skipping forward to 1969, the year that the Beatles split up and the year that we landed on the moon, I believe, age, uh, he would have been 62. He started working on his Attachment and Loss trilogy. These are three books that he is most known for. They're, um, you know, seminal works in the field of psychology, psychotherapy, and development. Uh, he worked on these books from the age of 62 to 73. So he really decided at this stage in his life that he really wanted to put his mark and really fully describe his theory of attachment. Um, he writes in the forward in one of the books, he writes about how he started working on these books back in 1962 after his uh, 1960 publications. And he thought it would just be a small book and he would move on to other things. But as he was writing this first book, he realized that the topic of attachment was so much bigger than he thought it would be. I can totally relate to this in my writing or even in deep dives. I'll, like with this deep dive, for example, I sat down and I was like, okay, you know, let's spend, eh, let's spend a week, maybe one weekend and get my notes in order. And then maybe I'll record in a couple weeks and I'll pump this out in a weekend or something. And after a while, you're just like, no, 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 this is taking away. This is taking a lot longer. This is, this needs more time than that. And uh, so, yeah, fast forward months later and here we are with this episode. And so Bowlby ran into the same thing and he was just going to write a short little book, maybe publish it in a year. And it ended up being um, probably uh, 20 years of his life working on this trilogy. Um, he, he realized that he needed to really fully describe a brand new theory of motivation and behavior that was built on up-to-date modern science rather than outdated notions in Freudian theory. He really felt the need, and there was a huge need, to just really fully describe and justify his theory because in, in these publications, he doesn't just describe things. A lot of it is referring to research. He'll talk about um, you know, empirical observations of animals and humans and 
it it really is a work that is attempting to say, look, this is real. It's based on empirical science, and you need to pay attention to it. So the first in the trilogy book was called Attachment. This was published in 1969. This is seven years after he started the trilogy. He published his first one. Complicated book, but easy to understand, sort of, I would say. There is a lot of writing about evolution and instincts and how other animals have evolved to exhibit uh, particular behaviors of attachment that are analogous to human behaviors. He wrote about how many animals have behaviors governed by cybernetic principles, self-correcting. When people think of cybernetic, they think of like the Terminator and this sort of thing. But actually, cybernetic um, means uh, the, the real meaning of it is that there are systems, whether it's biological or mechanical, that are designed to self-correct. So a falcon that is diving on its prey will make continual adjustments to make sure that the falcon stays on a beeline for the prey. In a similar way that a missile, a guided missile, will um, have you know heat, a heat-seeking missile or something, needs to make continual adjustments to make sure it stays on target. These are cybernetic um, adjustments. So he wrote a lot about that. And so applied to attachment is the child will continually, uh, through cybernetic mechanisms, self-correct to make sure that they stay close enough to their primary caregiver, while at the same time wanting to explore. So it's, it's this notion that you have instincts that you, we evolved as a uh, response to the environment to keep our attachment to a certain level. So just a couple quotes from this book. He wrote, quote, As my study of theory progressed, it was gradually borne in upon me. It's kind of a weird phrase. It was gradually borne in upon me that the field I had set out to plow so lightheartedly was no less than the one Freud had started tilling 60 years earlier. <laughs> sort of a poetic saying that, uh, he's trying to um, uh, as, I think what he's saying here is he, he said, as I started to develop this theory, it occurred to me that I'm actually trying to completely rework a grand theory of humans that Freud started a long time ago. I think he was thinking that I was just trying to add at first, I was just trying to add a random finding that I thought was interesting to the field. But then as time went on, I realized, no, I'm kind of completely re- re-plowing the field. I, I'm, I, I'm completely redoing things here. And, and it was true. He was. Another quote here. The young child's hunger for his mother's presence is as great as his hunger for food. So very important statement there. In this book, he really formalizes what we understand to be attachment theory today. Up until this point, he's um, developing his, his notions, but when he publishes this first book and the subsequent two other books of the trilogy, it's total standard attachment theory as we understand it today. He speculated that we humans evolved our attachment instincts during our time as hunter-gatherers. At first, newborns are, have an instinct to direct their communication to anyone who will respond. And then over time, the infant increasingly focuses their attachment behaviors on a particular caregiver, the primary caregiver. 
and that this uh, focusing of one's attachment behaviors on one particular person facilitates a, a needed attachment for survival, and the infant attaches to that person. The attachment provides a secure base for that person, for that infant, from which the infant can venture forth into the world and explore things and return when they need safety and security. And if that attachment is compromised somehow, either through neglect or the death of a parent, for example, then the child is overly stressed out as, um, as, it, as the loss happens and the infant has trouble soothing themselves and also has trouble venturing out into the world. In this book, he asserted that the attachment system was in operation throughout our lives. So I think this might be the first time when he really asserts this. So at the beginning, he's really just focused on infant development, really. But in this book, he says, through my findings and observations, I have found that this, these attachment behaviors and attachment concerns are not relegated to early life, that throughout our life, we have attachment needs and attachment behaviors. And that attachment theory doesn't just govern early parenting, but it governs all relationships, particularly close relationships. I completely agree with him on this, and a lot of research has found this to be true, and it is a revolutionary idea. So not only was he suggesting that the Oedipus complex was a piece of shit and that the psychosexual phases were not relevant, so he's really throwing that all out, but he was also saying that the entirety of human development and the entirety of human well-being throughout the lifespan is governed by attachment. This was mind-blowing at the time. The notion that adults would need to attach to other people, that we have attachment needs similar to that of a six-month-old infant, was not you know, readily accepted. They were already having trouble with this theory uh, before, and now they're really having a hard time with it. But... It's a beautiful uh, assertion, in my opinion. He asserted that attachment insecurity is adaptive when we're children. So, he, so he's saying that you know, when a child has those weird attachment behaviors, like they'll get hostile with the parent when they return uh, to the strange situation or they're, uh, they act like they don't care about their parent, this is actually adaptive, is what he was claiming, that it actually helped the child cope with bad parenting, essentially. But that these adaptive techniques to bad parenting in early life become maladaptive later in life, resulting in psychopathology and relationship problems. He laid out his hypothesis regarding the adaptive function of emotions. So he looked at emotions and he said like, well, what's the purpose of emotions? How does it relate to attachment? What, what, are, what are the, what's the, why do, why did we evolve emotions? And the idea goes is that we perceive our environment most, mostly subconsciously and we make an assessment again, mostly subconsciously. We appraise as he puts it is what's happening right now. Is my environment pleasant or is it unpleasant? Is it good or is it bad? And through this mostly subconscious appraisal through unconscious perception, we determine whether something is pleasant or unpleasant. And then we have a corresponding emotion to that appraisal. 
And then we exhibit behavior to communicate our emotion to other people so that we can get help or we can modify our environment. So for example, when we're infants, our emotions alert our parents to our emotional state, to, which is a indication of our perception of our world, right? So that they can take appropriate action. So for example, when a child is crying, and parents know this, by the time the child is a month or two months old, parents will know the different kinds of crying, they will say, oh, that's the crying they do when they're uncomfortable, or that's the crying they do when they want to be held, or that's the crying they do when they're hungry, or that's the crying that they do when, they have, uh, when they're uncomfortable or they're too hot or they have a rash or something. Um, and that's the crying they do when they're in extreme pain from an earache or something. And sometimes it's not readily apparent, but at any rate, the, the crying alerts the parent. And, and so we, if we walk ourselves through the steps backwards, the crying results from an emotion, which compels the behavior of crying. The emotion is created by a perception, mostly subconscious, of one's environment. So if the child has a rash and, is, and is, it's hurting them, or say an earache, it's hurting them, they perceive it as an unpleasant situation, naturally, which causes an emotion of distress, which compels crying. So that's the sequence. And we only cry. We're not crying because unpleasantness automatically results in crying. We're crying because that signals to our attachment figures to come to us and help us with, with whatever we need help with, right? So that's the sequence, that it's all related to attachment. It's all related to communication to our primary attachment figures. And this you know, goes into adult life as well, that when we are um, sad and hurt, we might cry, which signals to our loved ones that we are having an emotion. And the hope is, is that through our tears, they will, they will notice our emotion and come to us and help us. Or another example is laughing. So when an infant laughs, they're communicating something, right? So if we just look at it through this, through this uh, Bulby model, we see that, and there were other people that had similar models, so it's not like Bulby completely invented this whole notion, but, that he, but, but he did, he was uh, the pioneer of connecting this to evolution and attachment. But anyway, so you have a child who has a need for connection with their parent. They want to have fun and feel secure. And so the, the parent comes to the child and does funny voices, or tickles the child, and the child in this moment feels entertained, they feel cared about, they feel close, and uh, so they're perceiving their outside environment as being good, as being safe, as being loving. So that's their perception, and then they have an emotion that feels pleasure and good. And they signal, from that emotion, they signal that emotion through laughter and by, you know, when you see a baby laugh, you just can't help but to do more of whatever it is that's making them laugh, right? It's just this, we're, we are, we have evolved to do that, right? And that, that compels the attachment relationship. It communicates to the caregiver, I like this, please continue. And it directly taps in to 
evolved mechanisms in the parent's mind to continue doing that behavior. And then it creates this loop, right? And attachment is facilitated. The child continues to get more of that. The bond deepens. So everything benefits through the attachment foundation. Okay, so skipping forward to 1972, I am now one year old, and he is 65 years old. He officially retired, and this is from his regular job at Tavistock Clinic in London, from his department, of, uh, department for Children and Parents. But he kept doing research, and he kept writing about attachment theory. I mean, his trilogy wasn't done yet, right? He had only published the first book. So that leads us to the next year, 1973, at the age of 66, when he published the second book in the trilogy called Separation. In this book, he talks about how children fear two different things. They fear the absence of an attachment figure, the separation from the attachment figure. But they also fear the presence of culturally acquired clues of danger. So in other words, uh, learned clues of danger. So children don't necessarily come out of the womb understanding that uh, snakes are dangerous, for example. And so they learn by watching other people what they should be afraid of. So these are the two things that children are afraid of, uh, uh, separation from caregiver and also culturally acquired clues of danger. He wrote about stress-reducing behavioral sy- symptoms and safety-promoting behavioral sy- sy- systems. He continued to refute Freud's uh, ideas, for example, his assertion that children strive for the absence of stimuli to soothe the self. Instead, Bowlby wrote that uh, humans are actually driven to maintain a balance between safety and exploration, that they're not just looking for safety. Humans actually want to explore the world. Uh, and s- so safety is being close to your parents and exploration is uh, novel situations, new information, you know, seeking out new things. In this book, he also, I believe he introduced for the first time his idea of inner working models. This is a very, very important concept, which I'll get into more in the theory chapter. But it's sort of a cognitive notion, like a schema or an interject in object relations theory. Basically, what he talked about was that children develop an inner working model of their caregivers and an inner working model of the self. And these working models help to um, understand themselves and to understand others and to predict themselves and predict other people. And uh, these are, I'll get into more of that in the theory portion, but um, just know that this is when he started writing about that. He also wrote about how parenting behaviors and interactions are passed down through the generations. And therefore, family dynamics are probably more important in the development of mental issues than genetic factors. This is a a very, very important assertion that is still worthy of spouting today because a lot of people don't really understand this. Again, it's worth repeating. Him in 1972, he wrote about, according to empirical observation and and lots of different uh, vectors of evidence pointing towards this, is that parenting behaviors, parenting interactions, parenting attachment with children are passed down through generations very important idea that I teach all the time with my students. And therefore, if we really wanted to uh, help people, large groups of people with mental illness and or mental issues or 
criminal behavior or school dropout or uh, addiction, then what we need to be focusing our attention on is helping families cope better, helping families parent better, because not only will we help the children of today, but those children will grow up to be better parents for their children. So just a massive idea there that I find to be incredibly important. All right, so skipping forward to 1980, at the age of 73, I was nine years old at this time, he published his third volume in the Attachment Trilogy called Loss, it's just simply called Loss. Again, pretty complicated writing, pretty technical. He's integrating a lot of findings from a lot of researchers. That's one of the coolest things about his writing is that he acknowledges a lot of other researchers. He's, he's not one of those authors that just writes about himself or ignores all the other research that's going on around him. He wrote about his model for how the brain works, how the nervous system is comprised of several subsystems. At the top, you have a number of sub subsystems that evaluate and control the psyche, and they're linked to long-term memory. And uh, this, this higher subsystem scans for incoming information and it determines if the information is relevant or not. And then if it's relevant, the higher mind tries to determine if the information is, uh, should be stored in short-term memory. I don't know. It's sort of a complicated thing, but he goes into that. He also asserts that emotions were a major element in attachment behaviors, as I was talking about earlier. He talks about how when we attach, we feel euphoric, we feel in love, we feel good. So there's all these emotions that compel us to attach. So I haven't even gotten into that whole thing, right? Like falling in love. Like if, if that doesn't tell you that we evolved to attach romantically, I don't know what does. When we lose someone, uh, Bobby wrote about, we feel awful, we feel sad, we feel panicked. And all these emotions result in motivation. When we feel euphoric, good, and in love, this motivates us to move toward that person and to enjoy that person and to want to spend time with that person. When we lose someone and we feel awful and sad and panicked, that motivates us to try to find that person or to try to find someone to attach to. This explains a lot, right? And, you know, like I talked about earlier, I think, how uh, the incel community that I've talked about, MGTOW people, um, attachment can inform that quite a bit, and hopefully I'll get into that later. All right, so moving forward into the 80s in general, when Bowlby was 73 to 83 years old, he, this is the 1980s, he finally started to get some recognition. People finally started to listen to him. It's just so interesting. You know, it makes me think about all these other geniuses like Vincent Van Gogh or something. And during his life, people thought his paintings were stupid. I mean, I don't know that if that's for sure, but I've heard that. It just reminds me of stuff like that. But I'm just so glad that Bowlby, during his lifetime, finally got his um, got justice for his theory. And so finally, in the 80s, people started to listen to him. I would surmise that a big factor was that Freudian theory had finally fallen sufficiently out of style by the 1980s. So there was enough openness to his idea, or any idea for that matter, and Bowlby's ideas naturally rose to the top as something that was worthy of paying attention to. And a lot of young researchers started investigating attachment and how it worked to provide more evidence or more nuance to Bowlby's theory. 
Uh, for example, they started looking into parenting styles, and they found that there were distinct patterns of responding to children by parents. You had uh, autonomous, secure parents, and these parents, when you interviewed them, so you interview these parents and you, you ask them about their early, one of, the, one of the ways of determining attachment style in, a, in adults is by asking them about their memories of their childhood with their, with their own caregivers. And secure parents, healthy parents, when they're asked about their childhoods, they'll give very clear, uh, um, coherent accounts of their early attachments. It doesn't have to be all positive, but it just has to be clear and coherent. It has to make sense. Um, and it is, um, you know, easily talked about. Then you had preoccupied parents or anxious parents. These parents spoke of a lot of conflict in their childhood and also seemed to be uh, disorganized as they talked about their childhood. So not only did they talk about a lot of conflict, but it didn't really come together in a coherent way. And then you had the third style of adults. These were dismissing people and or avoidant people, and they tended to be unable to remember much about attachments in their early childhood and or they idealized their parents in an unconvincing way. So when they looked at these different classifications of secure parents, preoccupied parents, and avoidant parents, they found that these were empirically correlated with, the, with their children's attachment styles. So, for example, secure parents tended to have secure children. Preoccupied parents tended to have parent, uh, children who were also preoccupied. Avoidant parents tended to have children who were also avoidant. Um, now, there's a lot of variation because there's a lot of factors that play into that. But, but that was a very interesting finding in the 80s. And so Bowlby's like, yes, thank you for investigating that and confirming the theory that I've been trying to put forth over this whole time. His son, Richard Bowlby, wrote an introduction to a new, newer printing that I have of a book that he published in 1979 called The Making and Breaking of Affectional Bonds, which has a very silly uh, uh, cover. If, you've, if you get a chance to look at the old cover of The Making and Breaking of Affectional Bonds, it's, it looks like a, like a romance novel. Really, it does. But anyway, um, his son, Richard Bowlby, wrote about how uh, his father really wanted his theory to help other people and that in his later life, he was really frustrated that people weren't listening to him. So I'm sure he got some happiness by finally some people sort of listening to him in the eighties. So in the eighties, 1985, another major figure, uh, in attachment theory emerges, Mary Main and her colleagues developed the adult attachment interview. This is sort of the thing I was talking about earlier, and I'll get into the more of the details of that in a later chapter when I talk about measures. How do, how do we measure attachment? 1988, he is now about 81 years old, and he starts to write about attachment and therapy. In the final years of his life, Bowlby started to investigate and write about the uses of attachment theory in therapy. Because up until this point, he was really only interested in explaining behavior from a ethological perspective, from a developmental perspective. He, he wasn't really interested in, in, although he did think it would apply to therapy, he wasn't really writing about it or, or talking about it. But he started to write about it um, around this time. 
And also in 1988, he published one of his seminal works called A Secure Base. Bowlby asserted in this book that attachment was a basic human drive alongside the drive for food or for sex. He wrote about the importance of parental love. He summarized Mary Ainsworth's research on attachment styles. He reviewed research that found associations between attachment and psychopathology. He described how therapy can help people by helping people to feel more attachment security. And he continued to respond to criticism from psychoanalysts. He was still at this quote. Anyone who places emphasis on what a child's real experience may have been was regarded as pitifully naive. So essentially he's saying, you know, because I was actually focusing on the actual experience of children, I was considered naive. So Bowlby's ongoing tiff with psychoanalysis. So to us looking at this, we might say like, oh, come on, Bowlby, like give it up. Like who cares? But I think, again, part of Bowlby's issue with attachment injuries from his early childhood compelled him to to do this. But also it feels weird to us because psychoanalysis isn't what it was back then. You know, it was like I was saying, it was so dominant back then that you could, um, it was, it just felt like an over, uh, a longstanding monkey on his back, you know, anyway. So 1990, he published his last book called Charles Darwin, A New Life. It's a biography of Charles Darwin. It's sort of an interesting turn in his professional career. Like he's doing all this stuff and then he just writes a biography of Charles Darwin. Um, it doesn't really have anything to do with attachment. It just, he just really, he just, my uh, take on this is that I think he just wanted to do a deep dive. He's, you know, sort of like me. He's just like, man, I loved, I've always loved Charles Darwin. I want to do a deep dive on that and maybe I'll just publish it. Well, he died around this time and his, this book was actually published uh, posthumously. And um, he actually, in this book, tried to provide a conceptualization of Darwin's personality and development himself. So he's, he was trying to analyze Darwin, and he looked at Darwin's family of origin experiences, and he started with Darwin's grandparents and then Darwin's parents. This is a very similar process that I put my family of origin students through. I have a class that I teach called Family of Origin. So yeah, but Wilby died at his summer home on the Isle of Skye in Scotland. It's a large island in northern Scotland. Uh, when I look at pictures of the Isle of Skye, it reminds me of the islands in the Puget Sound off of Seattle. Very desolate, lots of trees. It looks like it probably rains a lot, like it does in the Northwest. Some of John Bowlby's last written words nicely encapsulate his focus on attachment and close relationships. Quote, Many of the most intense emotions arise during the formation, the maintenance, the disruption, and the renewal of attachment relationships. The formation of a bond is described as falling in love, maintaining a bond as loving someone, and losing a partner as grieving over someone. Similarly, threat of loss arouses anxiety, and actual loss gives rise to sorrow, which while each of these situations is likely to arouse anger. The unchallenged maintenance of a bond is experienced as a source of security and the renewal of a bond as a source of joy. John Bowlby, 1991, that was published after he died. 
So I just want to provide a quote from Jeremy Holmes, a person in our field wrote, Bowlby's theory and its tremendous ramifications for clinical work were for decades virtually airbrushed out of the psychoanalytic record. Rather like some dissident, rather like some dissident in Stalinist times. <laughs> so, you know, in Stalinist times, when you had someone who spoke out against the party, the government would just erase that person from the historical record. And Jeremy Holmes is like, that's the way Bowlby was treated. Because he was speaking out against Freud um, in a way, this psychoanalytic community just tried to eliminate him from the record. And when uh, psychoanalytic people would teach classes, they wouldn't talk about Bowlby. They would talk about Winnicott or they'd talk about Fairburn because Winnicott and Fairburn were considered to be loyal enough to the party to be included, whereas John Bowlby had to be um, excised. And yeah, it just was one of the themes of his life. But anyway, um, yeah, so he died, he lived a long, good life, had four kids. Um, I tried to find out more information about the way that he parented, didn't find much information about that. I think, I, I see, you know, years ago, I thought I heard a podcast episode on maybe This American Life or something that went into this issue. I'm not quite sure. Uh, so it's possible, and let me know if you know any uh, sources that, can provide data on this, but I seem to remember people saying that John Bowlby had issues with his own parenting, that because of his attachment injuries growing up in life, he actually wasn't the best parent himself, which I wouldn't be surprised by. He was, again, significantly mistreated as a child. He was basically abandoned by his father because his father traveled all the time. And then his mother abandons him to, to chase his father across the world. And he's raised by a nanny, which was a wonderful oasis of attachment f- for the, his early life. And then suddenly, at the age of three or four, the nanny just disappears. And young John Bowlby probably had no idea why and just felt enormously abandoned. People died in his life. Then, then he's sent to boarding school at the age of seven. Just horrific attack. I mean, you know, it all under the norms of the time in the early 1900s. Just totally normal. That's just how you, you know, treat kids. That's how you raise good upper middle class kids. And yet I would know, and people who understand attachment theory would know that this is just tremendously damaging and will create attachment insecurity, personality disorder, psychopathology, difficulties in life, addiction. And in learning about John Bowlby, I just see a person who went through tremendous attachment injuries early in life, decided to turn that into a crusade for the world to alert us all to the reality of the human experience, that we evolved to attach, that we need attachments, that without attachments, we don't thrive, that with proper attachments, we do thrive, and that there's a fairly simple prescription that if we all follow, that if we uh, promote in our society, if we promote in our communities, that we can solve so many problems. We can do so many good things. We can reduce crime. We can reduce 
teenage pregnancy or unplanned pregnancy. We can reduce eating disorders. We can reduce um, misunderstandings between nations. You know, I'll get into this more later, but I, I, f- I believe that when Kim Jong-un is uh, reacting to us, it's from an attachment basis that he feels threatened by the United States. And so he's scared. And so he tries to, similar to how in the um, Ainsworth experiment, you uh, leave a child in the room by themselves. And then if you don't raise that child right, then when you return, the child is angry at you or tries to ignore you. Well, leaders will do that to other nations. When you mistreat a leader, they will punish you. Whereas if you make them feel safe, if you make them feel secure in their relationship to another nation, then they are likely to react with trust, with collaboration, with um, concession and negotiation and compromise the way that a young child will with, with secure parents. So I don't know, that's just that tangent. But anyway, so John Bowlby, a major figure, like I said, if I had to pick two desert island people, I'd pick Sigmund Freud and John Bowlby. All right, so that does it for that chapter. And the next chapter I'm going to do is going to be on theory. So please join me for that. I think I'll publish it the very next day. Thanks for joining me out there. Please take care of yourself and have secure attachments and pay attention to other people. And I'll, in later episodes, I'll describe how to create secure attachments with other people, including your children, because you deserve it. 